You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Close encounters of the first kind. Sighting of an unidentified flying object. Close encounters of the second kind. Physical evidence of a UFO. Close encounters of the third kind. Actual contact. Columbia Pictures, in association with EMI, presents Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The director is Steven Spielberg, whose most recent motion picture, Jaws, is already a legend. The producers are Julia Phillips and Michael Phillips of The Sting and Taxi Driver. Creating special effects is Douglas Trumbull, who in this film goes far beyond his achievements in 2001 A Space Odyssey. For the music, there was only one choice. 11-time Academy Award nominee John Williams, composer of the scores for Jaws and Star Wars. The technical advisor is the world's foremost authority on unidentified flying objects, Dr. J. Allen Hynek of Northwestern University. Heading the cast is Richard Dreyfus, who has shown his rare talent in such diverse films as American Graffiti, The Apprenticeship of Duty Kravitz, and Jaws. And making his American debut as an actor is the great French director Francois Truffaut, winner of the 1974 Academy Award. A close encounter could happen to anyone. It could happen to you. It does happen to Roy Neary. An average working man Neary finds his life, his very world, changed. Who are you people? We have very little time, Mr. Neary. We need answers from you. They're honest, direct, and to the point. Who are you people? Have you recently had a close encounter? I want to speak to someone in charge. I want to lodge a complaint. A close encounter with something very unusual. What the hell is going on around here? 
The title of the picture, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, refers to an intriguing possibility. Well, a close encounter of the first kind is one that is close, but nothing really happened. Close encounter of the first kind is visible contact with UFO. Forget the shape and forget how fast it's going. It's something that you just can't explain. Close encounters of the second kind are those which leave a physical trace. Holes in the ground, fern rings, broken tree branches, telephone lines down, animals disturbed, the stopping of car engines. Then the close encounters of the third kind are the most interesting of all. Close encounter of the third kind is really when you meet them. encounters of the third kind. The experience of an ordinary man shared by people from all over the world, irresistibly drawn by a compulsion they don't understand, to witness the most dramatic event in the history of the human race. And what you will see has never been seen before. Indiana town and leads to one inescapable conclusion. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Jiminy once again is Susan Tekla Kuglinska. I've got my mashed potatoes, I've got my sunburn chest, and I'm ready to go. Also back in the booth is El Goro. Hey, sorry if I sound a bit distracted, but I'm still looking with care for the shape of a square. I will find it. Sci-Fi Month continues with a look at Steven Spielberg's 1977 film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's really three stories in one. In the first, it's former cartographer David Laughlin, who's been recruited to help French scientist Claude Lacombe investigate a strange series of alien visitations. The second concerns Julian Geiler, whose little boy Barry is kidnapped by aliens. And the third follows Roy Neary, a man who's disillusioned with his life until he witnesses a group of alien ships which plant an image in his head as kind of an invitation to join them. We will be spoiling this film, if I didn't just already spoil it for you, as we go along. So if you haven't seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind, or it's two prequel films, Close Encounters of the Second Kind and Close Encounters of the First Kind, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, El Goro, when was the first time you saw Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and what did you think? You know, I honestly, I've been trying to think of when I first saw it, and I really can't nail it down. It had to have been a TV watching, and the kind of memory that I sort of have is that I was with my dad and was flipping through channels and sort of landed on about midway through, and he knew that I was into science fiction and particularly into E.T., and I I do kind of remember him saying, this was E.T. before E.T., and watching it as a young child and kind of being disappointed that it was decidedly, well, not E.T.-like. 
but we'll certainly get into some of that later on. And then over the years, you know, I catch it bits and pieces here, uh, here and there, um, on television, but I don't think I actually ever sat down to watch the entire thing until I think it would have been the 30th anniversary release when Spielberg did his uh, preferred director's cut of the film. Ever since then, I've just been absolutely enamored with the movie. It had existed previously as one that was not quite at the same level of, you know, Steven Spielberg at the height of his powers in the late 70s into the 80s. But now for me, it un- is undisputedly one of his masterpieces. And Susan, how about yourself? I was about eight or nine when this came out. So I was just a little bit, I now I had seen Star Wars just a few months before and you could not rip me out of that theater. Then when this came out, I think my parents rightfully kept me from it because I was still going through that phase where I'd get a little too scared of scary things. You know, as a kid, what you want, all you cared about were what the aliens looked like. So I just remember being consumed with wanting to know because, you know, you, you heard the rumors that they were amazing and all of that stuff. So eventually it came on TV. So like so many great movies, it was one of those movies that I, you know, unfortunately first saw on this little electronic box with commercials and bad edits. And I know that's even a whole other version of this movie that's even probably different from the ones that are out um, that people can purchase. But anyway, that's probably the first time I saw it. And I, my memory is that I was pressed up against the television, waiting to see those aliens, didn't really care about the rest of the story. It was adult enough that, you know, I just didn't care, probably couldn't really follow it. Those aliens did not disappoint. Now, as an adult, I really, really appreciate the complication and the, the, the complexity of this story and how the story is told. And I think it's a really, really unique Spielberg movie. It stands out amongst his entire roster as something really different. So anyway, we'll be talking about that. But um, definitely as a kid, it, those aliens, they were as scary as I could possibly have imagined them. And they were worth every bit of the waiting and, and the horror when, when I saw it on that little TV screen. Yeah, I think I saw this one first on television as well. I think our TV might have been a little bit bigger. It's probably at least like 24 inches. It's kind of like watching Fantasia and waiting for Mickey Mouse. Waiting for the aliens in this movie was just like, I waited 120 minutes before the first alien even showed yes. up. <laughs> is it worth it? Yeah, probably. Is the buildup worth it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as I got older, I definitely appreciated the movie more. I mean, it was such a part of pop culture. I mean, that five-note riff that the movie has was just everywhere. I think I'll close out the show with the Miko disco version. Own it, own it. Still own it. Original, original. When it first came out, I still have that record. Yeah, I mean, it, it was such a pop culture phenomenon. But yeah, compared to the other science fiction film that was released earlier in 1977, I definitely had my druthers. And this one really wasn't one I went back to too often. I remember watching it probably mid-90s, and that's when it finally clicked with me. And then I did go see it, not the 30th anniversary, but the 40th anniversary. And that was the first time I ever saw it theatrically. And I was just like, yeah, okay, this works. I don't know which version I ended up seeing, because my God, there are a lot of different cuts of this thing. And then the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, okay, because you know there's like that relationship that... Spielberg has with Kubrick. And the more I think about this movie, the more I think about how this is kind of an answer to 2001 A Space Odyssey. 
Yeah, I can certainly see that. I mean, they are dealing with very comparable themes. But if anything else, it's interesting just how much it speaks to the the men behind it. The fact that when Spielberg would take on this material, his focus is so much more on the emotional impact of what this would be. I mean, I don't think that uh, Stanley Kubrick would ever base anything off of the uh, lyrical refrain of when you wish upon a star. I, I just can't see that in his DNA. You know, people like to say that Close Encounters was the first movie where aliens were peaceful and trying to help humanity. I would debate that. I have a controversial take on that as far as what this movie really says. But I think Kubrick was the first to propose that aliens were friendly. I mean, I think that was the point of 2001, that they're, they're helping us. So I think that's a little unfair to take that away from Kubrick. But secondly, what also Spielberg takes from Kubrick is the horror aspect, which I'm I think is really significant in this movie. I think this is a terrifying movie in a way. And it's so funny to think about the melding of this child and this innocent child. And it's got like almost little aspects of E.T. and what's going to come in the future from Spielberg. I wish Spielberg had done more horror movies, actually, because he's so good at it. And it's genuinely scary. And that is is very much a reflection of 2001, which I think is very much um, has amazing horror movie elements, including, you know, the music, which ended up in The Exorcist, which ended up in The Shining and all that stuff. You know, there's there's a lot of horror in both of those movies. So you don't think Clive 2 was a peaceful alien? It, it was it was uh, limited a little bit since you had Gort going around melting things with his laser <laughs> eyes. So. <laughs> but I mean, he had good intentions. He wanted to basically so. he, he, save ourselves from ourselves. Yeah, he was the first space Jesus. Yes, yes. Space, one of many space Jesuses, though not as good as Franco Nero in uh, the Visitors. Yeah, oh, you, you oh can gosh. be as good yeah. as Franco Nero yes. in the Visitors. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, I adore that. Film. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Talk about music! My God, both of those films have uh, Lance Henriksen in them. Is Leonard Henderson really in this? I mean, I, I didn't, you know, you notice him at the end. There's one shot of his face. When else is he in this movie? How am I always missing him? All I'm pretty sure all of his other scenes got cut. I was looking through some of the deleted scenes and it's like, oh, there's Lance Henderson. Okay, so he was more in a slightly more significant role and then just ended up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, like Carl Weathers is in here playing a guard. I'm, I never notice him when he's in here. No, never. I always find it very fascinating the road this took to get to the silver screen. This whole idea of the original drafts were really like 180 degrees different from what we ended up with. You know, we've got Roy and his becomes more childlike. Like he's open to these ideas and he's very wants to play games. He loves his toy trains. He's, you know, just like he feels very much like he wants the second childhood. And I think that's why the aliens are like, okay, you're our guy kind of thing. And then you look at what the original story was like that this was supposed to be from the point of view of somebody working for project blue book. And they actually see an alien and then go, oh, okay, yeah, this thing that we keep saying is fake is actually real. And then the government's like, yeah, if you go public with this, kiss your life goodbye. You know, you're going to be mocked by your friends. You're going to be ostracized. You know, his the guy uh, sees this alien. He does go public. Everybody turns against him. His wife divorces him. Everything is just going to shit. And it's this really crazy like biblical analogy and there's definitely a lot of biblical stuff in the final film but this whole thing of uh paul on the road to damascus and how he becomes this believer and wants to go out and proselytize about the aliens basically and it's kind of funny how it goes from this 
you know, very stern government official to Roy, the guy that works at the power plant. Yeah, it is fascinating to me. And, it, you know, I was reading about that uh, original Paul Schrader uh, script for that and thinking it's just like, what was Spielberg thinking to, you know, task Paul Schrader with this material? Because when one looks at his filmography, his sensibilities do not seem in line with what we know Close Encounters was. But then I have to keep reminding myself, this is before Spielberg was, you know, he was comfortable in his own voice or what he wanted to say. And I really think that a film like Close Encounters really helped solidify for him more in the kind of movies he wanted to make. I mean, I was watching an interview with him on the Blu-ray for this, and he was talking about, you know, the lessons he learned while making this movie. And he mentioned that Jaws, for all of its success, wasn't a movie that really taught him anything other than don't make a movie on the water. But Close Encounters was something that was a revelation for, for him in terms of filmmaking. So it's interesting to, to mark that sort of journey and see it come into fruition as kind of the emergence, the arrival of the Spielberg that we will know for pretty much the rest of his career. Somebody can write that movie very well of the, you know, it sort of would be based on that guy, Dr. Hayek. I'm forgetting his first name, but he's the one of the people who consulted on Close Encounters, who was a UFO expert. He, well, he was not a UFO expert. He was a person brought in to debunk these UFO sightings and eventually came to the conclusion that, well, I don't know, maybe I can't explain some of this stuff. And so he ended up consulting. But um, so I think somebody could write it. That's almost his story, you know, and somebody could do a good job with it. Paul Schrader, I tried to read that script like 10 times. I fell asleep every time. I could not get through it. That was not a good script. I mean, and 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 the same with Night Skies, too. I mean, you know, the movies that were not made that that Spielberg eventually rejected, you know, he comes up with reasons why, but I think also it just comes down to these were just not good scripts. Um, you know, somebody else could do it. And maybe he could even do it. I mean, I think he did a great job with War of the Worlds, which was not his kind of movie, which is awful interesting because it's a flip of this movie. But that's not his kind of story. And he nailed that, I thought. You know, I thought he did a great job with that. Yeah, I think it was just more along the lines of at this point in his early career – he was still finding yeah. a voice. And obviously, yes, he would he would expand out his palette a little bit. And War of the Worlds is a perfect example of that, that, you know, he's not afraid of going grim. I mean, this is the man who brought a Schindler's List of all things, of course. But I, I, it is interesting to see where his instincts were here and that this was a movie that he was clearly very attached to, which is why I think it went through so many iterations. I mean, like John Hill, David Geiler, a lot of people worked on this script until it finally arrived in – penned by Steven Spielberg, though I can't help but wonder how much of the earlier drafts made it into his final draft. One thing I want to say about him being early in his career is one of the reasons I think this movie is outstandingly good in his in his whole uh, roster is that it, it doesn't, and I, this is a backhanded compliment, but this movie does not insult your intelligence. And, and I don't mean that like but even even in his like Lincoln and, and his more serious movies, it, it, the 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 movies are very heavy handed. They really spoon feed you what you need to know about the characters with the opening and and with and with how things unfold. Whereas this is a very confusing movie. This movie does this movie does not insult your intelligence. You do not understand anything those air traffic controllers are saying. They're all talking at once. It's totally confusing. The opening scene, nobody's even speaking in English. And, you know, if you're a kid, certainly this is not a kid's movie. You you are not going to follow this movie. You're going to be quite squirming in your seat until the aliens come. This is an adult movie. Um, and I, I, I almost sometimes wish he would get back to that level of, you know, it became his, more his style, of course. His, it's just a way of storytelling that was his. But I like that this is an early movie where he hadn't quite locked into that, you know, spoon feeding kind of storytelling. 
You mean there's no animation in this that steps you through everything? Like, Dino DNA! <laughs> yes, exactly! We mentioned how many versions there are of this. I think even once he was quote-unquote done with this movie, he's never been done with it. And I think if he had his way, he would still be tweaking this movie today. I mean, he's tweaked it three times, like the the original cut, what do they call it, the special edition, and then the director's cut. And who knows, if he had his druthers, he might go back for another cut of this. He At least he's not doing like a George Lucas and adding tons of special effects post facto, but he might want to. Also, at least he's made all the different versions readily available, a lesson that Lucas should have taken from Steven Spielberg. Yeah, and what you do, you do that thing that he did, which is, you know, the same thing that Ridley Scott did. You release the box with all the different versions of it. Play whichever one you want, kids. But, yeah, thank you for at least providing me with that option. The same thing happened when he re- decided to rejigger E.T. and add in, re-add some sequences and to take out the guns. He still made made the original version available. And now I think that's the only one that is readily available. Oh God, that gun edit! I I loved when when it's South so Park uh, was parroting that, and all the FBI guys are carrying walkie-talkies, but they cock them. Coming this summer, it's the classic film that changed America. E.T. the Extraterrestrial, the new redone version for 2002. All the E.T. effects have been digitally upgraded. All the guns have been digitally changed to walkie-talkies, and the word terrorist has been changed to hippie. Ah, oh, dude, why would they do that? Yeah, hippies and terrorists are the same thing. No, dude, Spielberg changed terrorists to hippie to make E.T. more PC. That's gay. And now for your feature presentation. The classic re-re-re-release of Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. In this version, the word Wookiee has been changed to hair-challenged animal, and the entire cast has been digitally replaced by Ewoks. Ah! All right, we are going to take a break and play an interview with production designer Joe Alves. This is the first part of our discussion. You can hear the second part over on our Escape from New York episode. Do you mind if I ask you a quick question about Torn Curtain? Uh, oh, no, that was great. Yeah, I was an assistant art director. I was very fortunate because there was a studio system, and there is the favorites. The head of the art department picks who's going to do what, pretty much. And uh, I was fortunate that I was working for Frank Arrigo, and I just became an art director, and we were doing various television shows. And Hitchcock brought Hein Heckroff from Germany. He won the Academy Award for doing the Red Shoes or something, and he wanted him specifically to do the ballet sequence. And so Frank became really the production designer, and I was his assistant. So that that was a big jump from going, you know, from television to working with Hitchcock, and uh, he was quite a character. In what way? It's so different today. Uh, He would always wear his black suits and black tie. We would have to wear sport coats and ties. Well, this is 1965. So he would show up in the morning. We would go to the coffee machine. There'd be donuts and stuff, and he would tell these sort of unfunny jokes, and then we were supposed to laugh, you know. But I had a, 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 a you know, and we call, of course, called him Mr. Hitchcock. Uh, the, the executives called him uh, Hitch, you know. But I did have a personal experience with him, is that uh, both Hein Heckroff and Frank were on location. And Peggy, uh, who was his... Uh, Secretary called me, said, Mr. Hitchcock wants to speak to you. And I said, uh, 
Okay. Uh, what about Frank? Or no, no, no. There, he wants to speak to you. So I w- went to his office, and uh, he's sitting there. And he used to be an art director, and he he took the art direction very serious. More important than then when he was on the set, the actors were going to act, but he was so into pre-production. So anyway, he uh, said, "Okay." Mr. Newman walks down these stairs. I want you to make those stairs. And Mr. Whitlock is going to do a match up there. And then he comes down the bottom of the stairs. He goes over to the registration desk and leaves. I said, okay, so we got the registration desk. This thing. I said, well, now what about the reverse shot over to the left? No, no. I'm only going to shoot what I've just planned. So we would build half sets for Hitchcock. Unlike a lot of directors, and you build everything for them, and then they decide what they're going to shoot. So he was very economy-wise. In, in, in other words, you plan what you're going to do, storyboard everything, and then he'll shoot what he's already told you, as opposed to getting on the set and then figuring out what to do. So that was interesting about Hitchcock. Uh, anyway, it was a good experience. When was the first time you met Steven Spielberg? He did the pilot to Night Gallery with Joan Crawford. Uh, I didn't work on that. Howard Johnson did because he was assigned to the pilot. And then there was, quite quite remember, there was a series called The Psychiatrist. There were six of them. He did two. And then also he did one episode of Night Gallery. So it was about that time I met him. I remember when he was doing The Psychiatrist and other television shows, he really wasn't familiar with how to work with people. In other words, he had made these small films by himself. And uh, so he, he didn't realize when I was saying, well, here's a, here's a shot. You know, that I remember there's, uh, it was supposed to be uh, greens on a golf course. And I said, if you, if you shot it this way, and then if you turn over here across the river, there's the Tulaga Lake uh, golf course. You could see that in the distance and blah, blah, blah. So he looked at me sort of surprised, like, what are you laying shots out for me? And I'm just, no, no, this is how we work. We'll show you what's available and you shoot. You know, so he had to learn a lot in how to work with people. In other words, he also had a problem with he'd have a lot of extras and he'd start giving them lines and then a production manager would say, you can't do that. You just raise their you know, their fee by three times. It took him a while to learn. I mean, he always knew how to make movies, but he didn't know how to make movies with people. And then our relationship got much closer on Sugarland. And on Sugarland, we would travel, Bill Gilmore and I, Bill was the production manager, and we would go on location. And I remember telling Stephen, I said, well, we were going to the car, uh, Scotty, and I, and I said, could we stop here? And I, I walked down, and I said, if you bring Goldie down here and you keep those cars up there, you could see the big line of cars, you could get her, you get a master shot. And Bill would say, yeah, and you know, we're only 25 minutes from the base, so that's not going to be a long, you know, we're not going to waste a lot of time, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we got back, and he said, you know, Gosh, I feel like I'm stealing from you guys. And I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, you're you know giving me these suggestions." I said, "Well, that's what they are. They're just suggestions. You know, you uh, take it or leave it. You know." So I think that started him working with people. And then, of course, on Close Encounters, uh, we're all in Jaws. Well, we were very close on that because I storyboarded the whole 
last sequence, you know, uh, on the boat. And he pretty well, we sat down and pretty well followed the shots because you couldn't vary too much because we had to move a boat and all that stuff. It sounds like Jaws was a little bit of a, a war and that you guys came out of it much closer like you would if you were in battle together. Yeah, because, you know, here's the problem. We were very close, and, and uh, we would sit down and go shot by shot. And I was supportive of him. Where the studio wasn't so much. Of course, he had hired uh, the president's wife, which didn't hurt. But, but they tried to stop that movie, I think, only like four times. But Stephen was very steadfast. But when we finished Jaws, uh, so that would be, let's say, September, October of uh, 74. And then uh, probably January or so of um, 75, we went skiing. And uh, we were up at Mammoth, and we stayed at a friend's mine. Dick's mother's had a condo up there. And we got snowed in. But he said he was going to do this movie, Being Along and the Traveling All-Stars. It was black baseball in the 30s, so I, I got old mag, uh, life magazines and things like that of that period, and I started showing him what I had and what we'd have to do. And he started talking about this script he was working on called Watch the Sky, and Dr. Hynek's book, uh, UFO, a Scientific Inquiry, which was about UFOs and people that had seen UFOs and all these various experiences that people had about UFOs. So he started talking about that, and I said, uh, boy, that sounds more interesting than this black baseball picture, you know? I mean, nothing against black baseball, but this UFO thing sounds pretty intriguing. And he said, well, yeah, but I don't have a deal. And in those times, it's pretty hard because if a major studio didn't want to do it, you had to have a deal. You had to get somebody who was pretty, um, uh, Julia and Michael Phillips had just won the Academy Award for the Sting. And so he had developed some kind of relationship with them. So I didn't hear from him for a while. And I get a call from John Badham, who was a director I worked with some time, many times. And he said, oh, I'm doing this picture called Bingo Long. It's traveling all stars. And I thought, well... I guess Stephen's not doing it. It sounds like a little club there, huh? We know everybody. Uh, but uh, I ended up doing the uh, embryo with Rock Hudson because uh, Bill Gilmore set me up with this director that he'd worked with a lot. And so I did embryo, which was uh, a small independent. We shot it uh, in the uh, independent studio. Um and that was fun. Rock Hudson was an extremely nice guy. I got to tell you, he invited us all up to his house for a party and stuff like that, you know, with a lot of big stars aren't that way. But he is very, you know, not at all what he presented, you know, like, oh, he's a big star. Anyway, uh, then Stephen called me and he says, I've got a deal uh, for uh, Watch the Sky and we're going to shoot it at Columbia. So if you could go and talk to John Veach, who is the head of production there, and, and see what we're going to do. So basically, I met with John Veach, and he said, okay, uh, this is a very low-budget sci-fi movie, uh, maybe two, three million dollars. We're going to shoot everything on the back lot, and uh, the sound stage is here, but I need one location. We need a strange-looking mountain. There was nobody really assigned to it. There was a staff guy doing a, a budget breakdown, you know. And uh, he said, so if you could go find the mountain. So uh, I remember getting a map of the uh, scenic USA. 
And uh, Verna Fields, who was, won the Academy Award for editing Jaws, was now a vice president, and she had an office. And she had two offices. One was empty, and would go hang out there. Carl Gottlieb and other people were friends with her. So I was. I had the map. I'm looking at Ship Rock, Chimney Rock, the back of the uh, president's, uh, you know, uh, national. And so, and then Carl Gottlieb, they said, well, you know, this Devil's Tower uh, is supposed to be pretty interesting. We should check that out. Basically, I flew up to South Dakota, looked at that, and then I drove 3,000 miles uh, looking for strange, different monuments. I mean, you know. Ship Rock was quite interesting. It had sort of shaped like a ship's sail. Chimney Rock, all these various structures. And then I got to Gillette, Wyoming, and I started driving towards uh, Devil's Tower, and I'd see this little thing sticking up, and then it would disappear. I'd drive, and then it got bigger, you know, and then I got to it, and it was, my God, this thing is unbelievable. This strange-looking shape. It looked like it was something from outer space that just landed there, you know. What we did then is we took 35-millimeter camera, and we would do pan shots. Most art directors did this. We'd do pan shots of all these various locations. We'd come back to the office, and then we would mount them on a big illustration board. So when I showed this to Stephen, there was no question. I mean, this was it. So then we went up there and scouted it. With Vilmo Zygmunt was the cameraman. He was the cameraman on Sugarland Express. We had an interesting relationship. It took a while to develop it because I was a television guy and he was a feature guy. But we we developed a really good relationship after a few things that I did for him, uh, set wise. And anyway, uh, we went and we scouted. Uh, that area and uh, it was uh, it just it really worked for us so I came back and uh, in the script there was this strange mountain and then there was this uh, military settlement uh, next to the mountain and that's where the spaceship was supposed to land and it was just a military thing with tents and things like that I told Stephen I said wouldn't it be more interesting if we could build some kind of arena and he, he liked that idea. And I said, yeah, I mean, it would have to be pretty big because we would need to have all this uh, scientific equipment that's going to, you know, when the mothership comes down to, to record stuff and all that. He said, yeah, that's good. So anyway, I made a model. We did a lot of models in those days. Uh, it was the best way to really show what we we're going to do to make a three-quarter inch model. And... I made one, and John Veach took me to stage 15 and 16, and he says, this is where they shot Camelot, and there's two stages open up, so you have this giant stage, biggest stage that they have on the lot. And uh, he says, they shot Camelot here, that's the stage you could have. So I made the model to fit that stage. Columbia was having some financial problems. Uh, the, the guy that runs it was in some kind of... Uh, embezzlement thing involved with that. I don't know. But they were looking for a big movie to make some money. And we they got this young guy that just did Jaws, and took this shark picture, and it was like, it was growing to be the biggest gross ever was went past uh, pictures of the time, Godfather and whatever. So they they came I had the my office, and I had the executives and 
the the Phillipses and uh, Stephen, and they looked at it and they said, "Oh yeah, this is good." And um, they said, "Do you?" You think that's big enough? I said, no, I think it really should be bigger. And they said, uh, well, how much bigger? I said, well, I, if I could just do it, I would say four times this. I'd make it twice as wide and twice as long. And they said, oh, that's that's very impressive, you know. I said, well, I'll make a model. So I made another model, four times that big. And I never used cars. I used a little golf cart. So I mean, everything. So the thing had to be... This was like a pretty, like, if we found out that we were going to have an alien come down and greet us, we would prepare it. Uh, no money would be important, you know, all expenses. Just do it. I made this uh, huge model, and everybody loved it. Oh, this is great. God, this is going to be important. And suddenly, as Jaws became number one big box office, our budget started to grow. And now it wasn't... Uh, Going to be just a two or three million it was bigger, and then Doug Trumbull came on as a effects guy and stuff, and he had done Space Odyssey, and so it, it started to get a little bit more interest in doing this uh, picture. And um, after uh, you know, I built this thing, and they said, "Well, where are you going to build it?" And it was like I didn't have a clue. I just and Trumbull said I had to build it inside because he needed to totally control the light. So it had to be a totally enclosed. Clark Palo was a production manager, a very, very nice guy, and very, you know, let's let's go do it, Joe. And so we started putting feelers out to uh, different state uh, board that had a film, you know, department or uh, agents and stuff that would help us lo locate different things. And so we went to Oregon and looked at a huge airplane hangars from World War II, and that, that would have worked, but they had a sawmill on the far end, and that wouldn't work at all. And we went to North Carolina, went to Wyoming, and, and so these states were, oh, yeah, we have something, we have something, trying to encourage, encourage us to shoot there. And we would go there, and they would, had given us the wrong size, you know. I ended up finding out in Mobile, Alabama, there were two hangars side by side, World War II, and I went and measured them, and they were the right width, but they were like square, 300 feet by 300 feet, and I needed 300 feet by 450 feet. But the doors opened all the way, so I thought, well, I could extend that and add another 150 feet, and I built these, oh, God, scaffolding and we had to have a huge, huge, I had a place in, in Texas that made the black cloth that covered everything. It was so, so big. So I ended up with 300 feet, football field wide and football field and a half long. And that became the big set. It took five months to build. I had a great uh, construction coordinator, Bill Parks, uh, I hadn't used before, but Bill was uh, an old timer. He was a CB in World War II, and he used to smoke smoke a pipe, and he would call me Mr. Alves, Mr. You know, every Joe, Mr. Alves, and he worked, organized this stuff. And I got Ray Sampson from Paramount, who did uh, a lot of fiberglassing. And anyway, we built fourteen thousand square feet of rock, plastic rock. It went on like that. Uh, 
building this huge set. This, and then to the, the studio, I mean, the, the hangar next to it, I built a road where they, they drive off the road. So anyway, and then we had a 125-foot front projection screen. So what, uh, what Doug was going to do was photograph all that stuff in 65 millimeter. So everything that you saw where there would be a front projection, that way you wouldn't lose the definition by the uh, when you reduced it to 35. It went on. It was just bigger and bigger. George Lucas came over, and he sat there on the set with Stephen, and he said, this is amazing. We never built anything like this for Star Wars. Star Wars, we built the same, at the same set, and we just repainted it. Which was interesting because I I was up for the Academy Award against them and I lost to Star Wars, but I think people were looking at it and they were seeing the effects as being the design, you know, which weren't quite the same thing. But I did win the British Academy Award against the same people who were British, so that was sort of interesting, you know. Probably the bad thing is Doug took a lot of time and Stephen, I guess they kept changing things and wanted to do their. So we were supposed to be released in June, the same year that uh, Star Wars would be, uh, I think, uh, 76 or something like that. Uh, 77, I can't remember. Uh, maybe 78. Could have been 78. Anyway, but we didn't, we weren't released in June. Uh, Star Wars was, and they got. All the accolades, you know, this is huge. And we weren't released until November of that year. We lost a lot of the momentum with the late release, I think. Pictures of any note used to be released in November, October for the Academy Awards. They were never released in the summer until Jaws. And Jaws was the, the first big summer release. Uh, and so that followed with, with uh, Star Wars and, and then Jaws 2, we released the, They were big moneymakers. Uh, but Close Encounters really, I think, took a beating in that respect. Uh, Vilmos did win the Academy Award for the photography, which was good. Uh, Stephen got ignored on um, Jaws, didn't get nominated. That was terrible, but he did get nominated for Close Encounters, but didn't win. Um, I didn't do the illustrations. I did a lot of, because it was so big, I had George Jensen, an incredible illustrator, and he did, uh, I had a book out uh, called uh, The Making of, uh, of Close Encounters, and it has his illustrations in it. I only have a couple of those books left because Sony claimed that they owned everything. In other words, I did a thing for Wyoming Park a few years ago, the park division. They flew me up there to do a lecture and to start to sell their parks, uh, Yellowstone and this. So they wanted to emphasize Devil's Tower. So I went up there and we did a, they did film and they, they shot some snapshots that I had with Spielberg and Filmos on the rock and they were just personal. Sony told the Wyoming they couldn't use those. They were all belonged to Sony and I said, No, those are mine. Well anyway, when we did this book, uh, Dennis Prince who did Jaws book with me, we had to do it without Sony's permission. So we did a limited edition and it's a small book, but 
anyway, getting back to the illustrations, George's illustrations were so incredible, uh, depicting the mothership coming down, and all they're all in color. And Vilmos, I mean, you look at what he shot and what the illustration was, it would look the same. So we were very good about doing a lot of pre-production, you know, so I had some some good people on it. But and then Roy Abergas, who was uh, on Jaws, he actually was responsible for doing the, the shark skin and the mold and all that. And then I used him on Embryo. And so then I made him the head of uh, the effects department uh, on Close Encounters, which was interesting because it was all a studio system and he was a younger guy and uh, he wasn't uh, in the, he was in the union but he didn't have that position of being the head anyway i made him the head and uh, he ended up getting nominated for academy award for his picture uh, as a head uh, anyway it, it was an interesting i worked on it for a year before we started shooting so you could see what had you worked on anything that long before Probably the next longest thing would be Jaws 2. And uh, that was because I started with one director, and then they fired him, and then uh, they were going to shut the thing down. And I went to Netan, and was head of production. I said, there's a director. He said, are you one of the directors, you and Verna? And which was a good idea. We could co-direct uh, Jaws 2 because we had so much experience on you know, the first Jaws. And the, the director's guild wouldn't let you do that. They wouldn't let you have a position and be off of it and then become a director. In other words, people would fire a director sometime and, and use the cameraman as, a, you know. So I said, well, no, there's a, a, a director I worked with, a night gallery, uh, the most night galleries, and I, I thought he was pretty damn good. So that was, you know, Shork, I brought him in. And so anyway, we had to redo stuff. So that took a, a long time. That's pretty much Close Encounters. It was uh, an incredible build. You know, we, we did all the little aliens. I made a couple alien head sculptures, and they sort of did something similar uh, and other little creatures. Now, the problem was uh, to get the kind of effect that we wanted, I made the mothership. The mothership had to be like 80 feet. It had to be two levels, two cranes, and the bottom level would be all mirrored mylar with about three or 4,000 photo floods on it. And then uh, Vilmos could put a little fog down, and so, so we'd get that effect. But it was, uh, for the little kids in the, the suits, it was very hot, so I had to put air conditioning in there. It, it, it became, believe me, an incredible Incredible chore. <laughs> it, it, it was a difficult film. I just want to mention one more thing about Close Encounters, and it's in the it's in in, in the book. When Melinda Dillon and Rich Dreyfus climb up this hill, hill, and then they look over at the big arena. Today they would do all that in green screen. I built a, a mountain that was seven stories high on rollers, so we could roll it in front of the front projection screen. So you could just shoot a masters of it, and it, it was all in you know first generation. But that's just the way it was. We, I mean, I built this huge, huge uh, mountain, and uh, we just had a crew that were just building stuff like crazy. But yeah, twenty million dollars was a lot more than the three. But nothing by today's standards, of course. 
Yeah, I was reading Bob Balaban's book, and he said that this warehouse where you guys were at was so big that it almost had its own weather system inside. It was. It was huge uh, because of the atmosphere and stuff. And we had a terrible thing because the back half that I had this gigantic black backing, they had like a little tornado, and it came, and I'm sitting there with Stephen, and we we look at all the way into the set, and it's all black, and then suddenly we see this little bit of light coming through, and he said, what's that? I said, oh my God, the backing is just exploding, and then it exploded, and it was like this giant flag flopping about 150 feet by uh, 300 feet. It was just gigantic, so we had to shoot until that was repaired uh, night for night, you know, so with everything blacked. Um, just another problem. I love the beginning of this movie. And I don't know if the beginning has ever changed, but the beginning I've only ever seen is the beginning in, I guess it's what, the Sonoran Desert with the return of those planes where you're introduced to the Bob Balaban character, where you get introduced to the Francois Truffaut character. And I love this mystery that they set up. Even the very first line in English, like, are we the first? And it's like, what? The first what? What are you talking about? And I love how they go around. And when the music comes up, I mean, the score for this is fantastic. The music comes up and they're all running around checking the numbers on the engine blocks. My God, what a scene. Indeed. And then when it transitions, as uh, we mentioned before, but the air traffic control sequence, the intensity of that particular scene, the tension between the characters, and it's all just dialogue. It's all just radio and little blips on a uh, display, but it is just so tense and tight and is so incredibly 70s with the overlapping dialogue and just the holding on the shots as it does. It's a style of filmmaking that is certainly very much out of fashion today, but to me is just so tremendously compelling. That one little moment of that movie, which amounts to very little because we never revisit these characters ever again. But it, it it helps establish such a tone. And that's what I love about this film, that there are these sequences that build such incredible tone and tension. I mean, and especially when we start getting into the more horror-inspired elements that pop up in this movie. And it's, it's Spielberg's deft handling between these sequences that gives all of them their individual due. And much more makes them feel like part of a whole. The fact that he can have these moments of horror and also these moments of just pure wonder and they don't feel like they come out of different movies. It all comes together in one beautiful film. Yeah, the the air traffic controllers actually were real air, air traffic controllers. That he kind of borrowed again from Kubrick because in 2001 he had had a real NASA, one of the people who would talk to the people on the crafts. He had the, you know an actual guy doing that from NASA. And so Spielberg did the same thing. But again, it adds to the authenticity of this film that he put so much research into this. You know, he put so much seriousness into this. He really did at that point believe that, you know, this was a real thing, just like Kubrick did. So there's so much, again, there's so much reflection between the two movies. 
you can feel the director's seriousness, you know, behind it, which you don't feel again so much in some of his other films. I love that that there's just this intellectualization of this, and and again, like you said, the, the way they overlappingly talk to each other, almost like a like you just are like it's a video of air traffic controllers talking. Yeah, and this is before Reagan fired them all. Topical humor from forty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> that joke would have killed in eighty one. Susan, you mentioned Night Skies, which I want to say is kind of the bridge between this movie and E.T., but it's also the bridge between this movie and Poltergeist. That was the um, John Seals uh, script, right? Where it's like, basically, it's like the scene of Little Barry in this movie, but brought to an extreme, like taken out to like the whole movie is going to be about the family terrorized at home, which is kind of what Poltergeist ends up being. And instead of it being aliens, it's ghosts in that one. But you still kind of even in this, like the whole idea of Barry's toys coming alive and moving around all on their own. I mean, it's pretty spooky shit. At least there's not like a clown that's going to <laughs> attack him. Well, you've got that monkey, like that crazy, scary monkey, bling, bling, bling. I mean, and that's another thing that's, you know, interesting about this movie is there's so many references to classic alien stuff. So Night Skies was really based on a real incident, which happened in Kentucky called the Kelly Hopkins, Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. And he references that in Close Encounters, too, where this family in Kentucky swear to God up and down. It was very convincing to the entire community that they had, you know, gremlin like aliens all around their house, knocking on the ceiling and crawling around their chimney. And so you see that in the scene where he's abducted, where the, the chimney reference is directly um, to that Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. And so that's what they took that incident, that authentic UFO incident and turned it into that was the basis of this movie. And yeah, you could even reference gremlins, like you said, you know, it's it's not just poltergeist, it's it's every, you know, there's so much that came out of that. And of course, the ET, the way ET looks came out of the designs that went into that. But again, it was it's not a great script. I mean, it's and again, somebody can make that movie for sure. I think the Twilight Zone did a really good uh, example of that actually, of that that incident um that was very well done with Agnes Moorhead. The scariest part of that for me, the abduction scene is when the screws start coming out of the vent. How are they doing this? But here's the screws coming out. It's just so small and so nice and so dangerous all at the same time. And then, yeah, when that light comes down the chimney, it's just like, here's Santa Claus from hell, kids. You know, be be prepared. Well, and it's him utilizing the cinematic lesson he learned from Jaws. Now, he learned it by because the shark didn't work in Jaws. But it's the idea of the terror you can evoke by the unknown. The fact that throughout that entire sequence, we do not see the aliens. We see the effect of them. And made even worse, the uncanny quality they have. What with the screws coming up or the appliances going nuts and blowing up. Those are the things. And then lights outside. That, that taken as a whole creates a tremendously effective and terrifying sequence that uh, still more than holds up today. I mean, and I, I love the contrast of it, too, with how absolutely out of her mind terrified Melinda Dillon is in that scene. And yet, you know, there's young Barry, which I still think is an improbable name for a, ch for a child. I know adult Barrys have to come from somewhere, but I've never met a child named Barry. I've always met 40-year-olds named Barry. I knew, I knew a Barry. It's true. It's all real. It's all real. It's an old man's name, though. Uh, no offense to the Barrys out there. <laughs> but just the fact that he is just 
so, having so much fun with all of this that he is having a blast and that makes it even more terrifying because we want to be protective of this child that clearly doesn't know any better but at the end of the film actually no the, ch- the kid had it completely right that these guys are, are not out to hurt him or were they well you know i think it's interesting that they brainwash i, I mean i to my interpretation of this film and i spielberg seems to imply otherwise but it seems to me i, mean, I don't know if it's subconsciously what he meant roy is brainwashed i mean they take over his brain i mean that's why he leaves his family he does love his kids you do see a lot of affection in that family i don't think he would have done it except for this you know this obsession that they put in his head it was like a, a physiological kind of thing that they did to his brain and i feel like that's what's happening with this kid is He's so unafraid, despite all of this terrifying stuff. And his instinct should be to cling to his mom. But no, he lets them literally, he just crawls out that dog door like he wants to go with them. And I think that's, to me, it seems that's that has to be them brainwashing him. So to me, it's very, it feels very sinister. Again, I know Spielberg intended for these aliens to be benevolent, but I don't know how you come away from that, really. <laughs> And even Spielberg himself has said that, you know, if he was making this movie after he had kids, there is no way that Roy would have just abandoned his family to go hang out with the aliens. But, you know, I do take it at face value, the idea that this is simply overwhelming wonder, that for those that are are sensitive to what these aliens are offering, and clearly it's not everybody, but for those of them who are, they feel this inexorable draw towards the uncanny, towards this impulse. And, you know, there's a lot that has been made about this uh, serving as a metaphor for artistic creation. The idea that if you are so obsessed with a singular vision, much like filmmakers can be, you do do that at the expense of family. You do do that at the expense of what society wants you to do because you are compelled just to pursue this. Now, whether you view that as sinister or not, it's really going to come down to who you are. For me, I can understand where that impulse is. I don't, I wouldn't share that impulse. I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel inclined to just drop everything and go hang out with aliens, but I could understand it existing within people. The aliens trigger artistry. The, that whole thing of like, well, when you're a kid, your imagination is fantastic and you don't care about coloring the sky purple and the trees are yellow and, and the, the ground is red or anything. It's just, you know, you, you do it, you, you create and you're driven to create and the aliens are unlocking for all of these people that are going there. It's like, we've got Roy with his sculpture, Melinda's what painting. There's one guy who's like drawing. So it's like all of these people are like obsessed with the, this image and they're expressing themselves through this artistry. So like you talking about how like this is kind of the metaphor for the artistic process. I, I completely can see that. One of the other things about 2001 is when the apes initially encounter the monolith, it's like it puts, as far as my interpretation, it puts ideas into their heads. So I can really see this also with the idea of the aliens putting ideas into Roy's head into uh, Melinda Dillon's head, you know, and just like them being all of these people have been exposed, having this inside of their head. And to your point, Susan, yeah, it's driving them crazy. And there's one shot, and I don't know which version it's in, but there's one shot where Ronnie, uh, the, his wife, breaks into the bathroom where he's at, where Roy's at, and he's in the shower and he's got all of his clothes on and the water's coming down on him and he's crying. And it's just like he is so helpless because he's so overtaken by this. I mean, he's having a mental breakdown. And I think that's one of the most 
powerful shots in the movie, and I wish that it was in every single version. He's tortured and his family is broken up. You know, I really do think there's enough evidence that he does love his kids, that his kids do love him. Uh, that kid crying at the table when he's doing the mashed potatoes thing is just, it rips your heart. That kid should have got an Oscar. That's a beautiful cry right there. I mean, it just rips your heart out. I, it's it's just interesting to wonder why Spielberg put so much of a horror element into this. It is it's a really, there's, you know, the abduction is absolutely not just a little, it's, it's full. It's even scarier than a lot of scenes in Poltergeist. You know, it's a very terrifying scene. Um, at the end when the aliens are, are having a conversation with the scientists, suddenly the same thing from Jaws trickles in. When the abductees come off the, the ship, they look, they don't look happy. They don't look like they've been through something good. So I think it's really interesting. You know, like I know that, that he says they're benevolent. This is a sunshiny, happy movie, but I, I, I think it's really interesting that he says that, but the way he executed it does not, you know, it belies with that, that message. I think it's interesting anyway. You definitely do see that pop up so often in his career, even when he's not setting out to make a horror film. He has those horror instincts that, as you mentioned, that it would have been nice to him to see him make a full on horror film. Granted, there are some people that claim he did, that he was actually the person who directed Poltergeist, but right, we're going right. to go down and, and that Jaws, one. You know, like that. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Jaws, Jaws more than yeah. qualifies, in, in yeah. my opinion. But, I mean, even if you do look at what the ultimate uh, happy, fun alien movie, E.T., there's horror sequences in that. When e when Elliot is first investigating E.T. and encountering uh, him in the shed or when he sees them in, in the tall grass. I mean, that scene used to scare the hell out of me as a kid. Oh, God, when E.T. gets sick at the end and he looks like death. Ugh. Oh, it's devastating. So he has these horror instincts that he, for whatever reason, doesn't ever – fully commit to, but they are definitely in his DNA. The family in E.T. is already a shattered family, and we get to see the breaking apart pretty much literally when it comes to the Melinda Dillon character having her son snatched away, and I don't know if we ever really get the story of where her husband is, and then we see Roy's family being broken apart. I mean, Terry Gar is trying really hard, but my God, is he just... He's nuts, you know, and I can understand. I can empathize with her. I don't know if I'm supposed to empathize with her. I think I'm supposed to think that she's some sort of shrew or harpy because she doesn't support Roy as he's going through this mental breakdown. But once he starts throwing shovels full of dirt into the house, it's like, yeah, okay, I can kind of see this, why she would end up leaving him. I mean, really, she's at her wits end with this. And initially, you can be slightly more sympathetic towards the Roy character because she just refuses to entertain the notions he's throwing out. Like when he says, no, no, I saw something. It's like, no, you didn't. Come on. And it's all all of this. But eventually, yeah, you, we do have a greater sympathy towards her. And I think some of that is heightened in the later cuts of the film because I don't think the full – the full breakdown of Roy is played out as strong in the theatrical cut that a lot of those came in with the subsequent cuts. And we did get to see the greater stress. And of course, a, a lot of uh, stuff has been mentioned about the existence of broken families within Steven Spielberg's films and how that is a relation to his own upbringing where his parents divorced. And I can't help but see that 
childhood pain reflected in that sequence we were talking about where Roy was having the breakdown in the shower and then just it explodes throughout the rest of the family and one of the one of the kids is crying the other one is smashing things and then there's just the shot of the middle child standing at the door a tear running down his face and then slowly closing the door essentially closing the door on his childhood of of his parents being together it's a heartbreaking shot and I, I can't help but think that Spielberg was himself probably crying when he was shooting that. Yeah, one of the deleted scenes, um, I don't I don't think it ended up in any of them, was him on that roof. He has a roof deck where he's looking up at the st- stars and his middle, the young, yeah, the middle son comes up and says, time for dinner. And through that entire scene, he does not make eye contact with his child. He does not say a word to his child. And the kid's like, dad, do you hear me? And I like that there's not even one little bit of acknowledgement. And it just, that's sort of, to me, like it was, it shows more why than when he goes downstairs with the mashed potatoes, that kid at that table starts crying because you see that he is really, you know, after being the fun shaving cream monster, you know, and that earlier scene that was so sweet, you know, you just know and, and doing the train with his kid and teaching him fractions. You know, it's just it shows more of the flip that's happened. I think that was a very important scene that I, I wish was in all the films. I read that Jillian, the Melinda Dillon character, was originally written as male. And I just can't picture that unless there was like also the wife there as well. It just seems so weird. I guess the whole single dad with the kid kind of thing in 1977. Yeah, I couldn't imagine those scenes playing quite as well. And in particular, the the later suggestion of a romance between her and Roy. I mean, obviously, that, that, that could have been reconfigured once they decided to shift her over into a woman and they play that up. But I don't know. I, I, I could not see that scene playing out the same kind of way with a male character in there. I mean, it is interesting to see how, yeah, like you said, there is that suggestion of a romance. These two people are both believers, this man, this woman traveling together, and it's almost like he's reforming a family when it comes to now he's got her and then eventually Barry, but then he ends up leaving them as well. So it's like I was thinking that he was going to go from one relationship to another, but he ends up just making a clean break and going off. That said, it would have been tremendously progressive if they had kept it as a male. I mean, there are very few examples of that kind of uh, caring parental figure coming from the father's side. You know, the the desperation to get the child back and everything. It, 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 it would have been an interesting thing, but I think it would have been a little bit ahead of its time for 1977. Except for every – all the sitcoms – do you remember there was a time in the 70s and 80s where all the sitcoms were single dads for some reason? I don't – yeah. Oh, yes, so that's comedy, true. <laughs> for comedy, that was okay, but whatever. That's that's another that's another podcast. Yeah, My Three Sons, Courtship of Eddie's Father. I mean, those are just two family affairs. Oh, God, they there's keep coming million, to mind. There's a million of them. Yeah, yeah. Full house. And almost always – the father is an idiot and the father is going to screw something up. I mean, I think like the dad from my three sons is probably the exception to that, but most of the time the dad is just incompetent. He's kind of a Mr. Mom type character, at least those uh, first few days of Mr. Mom, speaking of Terry Gar, where Michael Keaton is just like letting the kid have chili and just you're know, completely screwing up and fighting the vacuum cleaner and all of these kind of things. I think they eventually excised the kiss, though, um, between there is a kiss in one of the one or two of the versions. It's, it's so confusing. I have a chart in front of me and I still can't keep all these versions straight. But I think at one point, um, Melinda Dillon and and well, Roy and uh, 
Jillian, kiss. And I think in other versions, they excise that. I prefer it without. I mean, I think it's better to the idea that he's just obsessed with, you know, it's just purely about getting on that spaceship. It's about seeing the spaceship and then and then getting on it. And I, I don't know, I, I kind of prefer it without the romance, to tell you the truth. I agree. I mean, any sort of suggestion of romance would by necessity have to be limited to the fact that they're both experiencing this and they're just would have been overjoyed that somebody else has experienced this. So it's, it's an elation that may see a physical manifestation, but it's not a necessary attraction to them. It's all based on the euphoria of their experience. I also appreciate when it comes to them going up devil's tower, how the one guy, like there's the third guy who shows up with them, who's like the character actor that I've seen a bunch, but how he's like, how do you know this? And he was like, Oh, try sculpture next time. And that Roy is just knows every nook and cranny of devil's tower because of his obsession, because of building it in his living room. And I, I was, you know, you guys know me. I love Freudian stuff. And so I'm like reading about the, the movie and it's just like, Oh yeah, Roy's going through, uh, his anal phase as well as his phallic phase by basically building this mountain of shit in his, <laughs> in his living room. This gi, as, as they would say, uh, you know, this gigantic phallus in his living room. I've heard people suggest that, but I think it's funny that he keeps ripping that the, the ultimate answer is he ripped the tip off. Like he just slides the top of the penis. That there you are. That's that's now it is the circumcised phallus. Yeah, we're getting some Jewish territory (laughs) there, or or just you know, your half castration or something like that. And then the mothership is like a giant breast, you know. I mean, people have suggested that too. Yeah, it's him going back into childhood, the symbolic re entering of the womb. Well, you know, they say that man is in his cradle here on Earth and that eventually will reach out to the stars. I'm not saying it's space aliens, right? But it goes without saying it's fucking space aliens. But yeah, I, I definitely enjoy some of the readings of this. And, and yeah, I think there was a whole thing about uh, Roy and uh, being obsessed with Ronnie's breasts as well. And it's just like, OK, I didn't really see that in the movie, but maybe it was in the novelization. It's not like he looked he looked at her breasts and thought, this means something. This is important. Maybe that was in a cut I didn't see. They happily excised a few little explicit things. Like there's also the the character of Julian, um, Jillian, uh, apparently in one version, you know, really ripped her shirt open to show him her sunburn. Like really, really ripped her shirt open, you know. And uh, I'm glad they I'm glad they didn't do that. I mean, it's not a it's not a kid's movie, but it's still it would achieve I think it would have cheapened it a little bit. Just this is not that kind of movie, you know. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Matthew Robbins. You can also hear over on our THX 1138 episode. I know that you had worked with Mr. Spielberg on Sugarland Express, and I think he was at one point supposed to direct Bingo Long and Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. Is that right? Yes, that's true. He was overcommitting. He was uh, becoming a very hot property. I guess Jaws had done that, and... uh yeah, you know, we lived in LA and we saw a lot of each other and had become friends and we Hal Barwood and I had written that for Motown, Barry Gordy's company. It was from a novel. And Stephen just loved the screenplay. It was very flattering. You know, he loved it, loved it, loved it. He thought he had time to do it. And as I recall, he didn't. <laughs> it was simply it's simply, you know, he was just like a kid in a candy store. And he just wanted to do everything that he found attractive. And so wound up being directed by John Badham. And he, he had already, I think I recall, more or less committed to Close Encounters in some fashion. And so he was sort of, you know, 
back on track, so to speak. He, who, his agent then was Guy McElwain, who was running this, you know, meteoric career. You know, it was, it was, even it was really breaking loose. You can imagine after Jaws. That was a little sort of footnote to <laughs> the history of Bingo Long. Stephen briefly was on board. And where was Close Encounters when you came on board? Because I've read Paul Schrader's version, which was just diametrically opposed to what we ended up seeing on screen. I can tell you that when, at that same moment, at Stephen's meteoric you know, <laughs> streak across the, the Hollywood skies, that McElwain wanted to make a deal for him at one of the studios. I better not guess. I'll get it wrong. He, McElwain, was an agent at ICM, and Hal Barwood and I had an agent at ICM, Jeff Berg. And so those guys talked, and they put their heads together, and McElwain knew that we were friends with Stephen, and, and there was Sugarland. It was, you know, Stephen loved making it, even though the box office was negligible. And it was a very healthy friendship and collaboration. And he, McElwain, came up with this idea that he could make a multi-pick pack for Stephen. Hal and I were brought in to supply, we were going to write the scripts for Stephen, who was going to direct these movies. And we had three story ideas that we talked about with Stephen and with McElwain. And one of them was pirate idea, which we never wrote. <laughs> in fact, we never wrote any of them, actually. <laughs> but one was about a bunch of pirates who founded their own nation in the Caribbean. You know, because that actually sort of happened. The pirate, pirates had you know, the same enlightenment ideals as the revolution, and they were free men of the sea. And even though they were wild, this one pirate captain was going to be the hero of this. It was a great idea. <laughs> you take over an island and create a pirate kingdom. I think it was based on some historical incident that we had stumbled across. Anyway, that was one idea. The other idea was about a policeman who gets a call to investigate some UFO that had come down at a farm. And he was on duty that night, and he, you know, the other cops are laughing at him because he's got to go out to this farm and talk to some farmer who's convinced that a flying saucer came down. And the cop gets to this farm, and the barn is burned to the ground. There's all this big scarring on the ground, and the farmers had a nervous breakdown. He's insisted that one of these cows has been hauled up into a flying saucer by its tail. <laughs> and the story is how this cop you know, has come that close to seeing an actual UFO and he can't, you know, but it, it, and he can't tell his wife, his friends are, you know, going to, he keeps it to himself, but he starts investigating and he meets all these flying saucer nuts who saw it go over the neighborhood that night, blah, blah, blah. It's a blue collar guy who has a UFO experience. You get the idea, right? That was idea number two. <laughs> I forget what idea number three was. None of this ever happened. <laughs> None of the scripts were written. Deal was never made, and and this was before, you know long before what you're asking about with Bingo Long or anything. You know, it was just a bunch of young guys hanging out, cooking up stories and deals. It was just it was very casual and chaotic. I don't know how serious this moment was. However, a year later or whatever it was, Stephen starts lining up everything to all these ducks to do close encounters, which bore this very strong first cousin resemblance to this old Barwood Robbins idea, for which we were absolutely fine. It made absolutely no difference to us. Those days, it was just, I, it was just a whole different mentality. It was great, you know. It's, 
wow, it sounds great. You know, we were just all young Turks, and ideas were cheap. <laughs> it was, it was, it's very hard to explain, but there was not one drop of resentment, or, and it didn't even come up. Because we were all busy. Everybody was working on stuff and, and new stuff. So I, I think that that's sort of how the idea was born in Stephen. And he never liked screenwriting. And he never did. And, and he, oh, Hal and I were invited to lunch by Michael Phillips and, and Julia, who I knew from high school. She was at my high school in New York. Literally sat in front of me in English class. Julia, Julia Miller, yeah. We had run across them, and you know, it was the new Hollywood was a morning, and Julia and I had laughed over the fact that we were both from back east and knew each other in eighth grade. But they wanted to know if we wouldn't write this movie. And we said, well, we'd love to, but we can't, because we had just, we had written an original dystopian, futuristic adventure film, sort of an action picture. This is long before Mad Max. It was in the same genre. It was years before Mad Max. It was a bunch of hairy bandits in the northwest of the United States and British Columbia who find and rest- you know, they get an old steam locomotive going and they explore northwest, you know, looking, looking for some remnants of civilization on this steam locomotive. It was called Clearwater. And we had made a deal for, at, at Universal for it to be my first film as director. And we had written it on spec. And so we had sold it and set it up. And so we were hugely excited and distracted. Gosh, it's, we'd love to do something with you guys. And, you know, the sti- space science fiction flying saucers right up our alley. But, well, of course, Clearwater, they sent us location scout. And we made a budget. We had a producer. And Stephen, you know, had to go elsewhere. He had all these other, like Schrader and this guy, John Hill. I don't remember the details you'll find out about these other scripts that were supposed to get him going at Columbia. And our movie budgeted out at 1900000 which was much too high. <laughs> they killed the movie. We never made it. And so <laughs> we just were sort of, you know, and this is, this is a part of our education about Hollywood, you know, the high kill rate. And uh, what did we know? We were, you know, fresh out of film school, sort of still in film school in a way. Stephen uh, was getting into his uh, production with uh, Close Encounters. We were invited to fix the script because there were problems. You know, it just had, we, we read it, of course, and we told him, you know, hey, <laughs> this is this. You know, we had all these hiccups and, and he agreed he agreed and and so he was hugely busy it was a big big movie as you know so we came on you know i also have to tell you that and this is hard to fathom in today's climate but came on as friends we weren't paid or anything we just you know he needed help and we we were like the dike had holes in it. We had to stick our fingers in to stop the water from speeding you know, we and we did all kinds of fixes on that script and we eventually had to go down to Mobile, Alabama. One of our ideas was to take the character of um, Melinda Dillon. She was one of the people sitting out on what we call Crescendo Summit, which is where these things flew overhead. And we made her into much more substantial character and to 
get her to come along on the adventure, we arranged, this was not in the script that was already in pre-production, but we arranged to have her have a little boy, a child, who would be taken by the aliens, kidnapped. And Stephen loved that. And so we wrote that into the story, and it brings her, you know, and all the emotional consequences into this movie, which gave her a lot to play, and it really made the, fleshed out that role, and and that was one of many, many changes. We worked on things about the uh, creation of the Devil's Tower model in the house and the mashed potatoes and the location of the of the disaster at Devil's Tower and, and how they find it, all this kind of stuff. How my writing partner was very much into all the scientific, if you can call it that, you know, the, the science it all. And uh, we, we wrote this and, and Stephen went, went off to Wyoming as I recall, to get into the... That was the first thing he was going to shoot, was the climbing up of the slopes of Devil's Tower. At which point, the studio read our draft and freaked out. What the hell is this? This wasn't in what we read. What are you doing? This thing is growing out of hand. You're, go, you're running wild. They were seeing their power slip away, which is a classic thing. You know, when you green light a movie, you're basically saying, okay, we're letting go of the reins. And once once that unit gets rolling at you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, and here was this young director, you know, headstrong off his hit, and he was even they haven't even started shooting yet, and there's all new script with this kidnapping, you know, and they sent one of their senior executives, Stanley Jaffe, to I think he went to Wyoming to confront the producers and Stephen to shut down the movie, and it was a crisis. Thanks, Hal. Thanks, man. That's one of my happier memories. (laughs) We we almost killed Close Encounters with this bright idea. And the Stevens anecdote of this is great, too, because we later learned, we didn't hear about this until years later, but he and producers decided to confront the studio head on because there were dozens and dozens of people building sets and dressing, you know, they were, they were that unit out in the desert with the army trailers. They, you know, there's a giant thing in Wyoming that they were already into for hundreds of thousands of dollars with a big, big team in anticipation of the start of shooting. And so they arrived at their meeting with Stanley Jaffe, wherever it was, with suitcases packed, saying, you want to shut us down? Go ahead. We're ready to leave. They called the bluff. Isn't that a great story? They, I mean, I only learned about that years later. You know, they had the the the, <laughs> the brass to stand up to this guy, and who was a big executive and who was highly regarded. He was uh, partners with um, Sherry Lansing for years. He was a big, big producer. He was, I guess, he went independent with her for years. Stanley Jaffe. I guess Stephen just got enthusiastic about what he was going to do or whatever it was. You know, the problem, as can happen, rose up out of nowhere and then is now today forgotten. (laughs) But it was a big hiccup at the time. We went, he he shot the movie and he was in Mobile. And again, there were things that they needed. And so they brought Hal and me down to Alabama. And we lived in a hotel room and we worked with a typewriter. This <laughs> is like the dark ages. In a motorhome that was on the set in Mobile, they shot 
all that stuff, you know what I'm talking about, the end of the movie with the, yeah, the mothership, that's all inside a darkened, I think it was an airplane hangar or something. It was some enormous, insufferably hot space. And Hal and I worked in there. And that's how come we're in the movie. That story is not very exciting. He just leaned into the trailer one day and said, hey, you guys want to be in the movie? Shave your beards off and we get some uniforms. And so, you know, I recently, my, my family was here and I found a bunch of the old Super 8 home movies, which I've had digitized. And there's a home movie of Hal and me getting our beards shaved off at that time. And some guy, I didn't know what it was when I first saw it. So I just saw Hal and his beards being shaved off and me and here. And the guy who's doing it was one of the hair and makeup people on that movie. And it's, you know, and we're in barber chairs in the makeup trailer on Close Encounters with this great movie that I shot Hal's beard being shaved off and he shot my beard shaved off. You know, it was funny at the time. And we put on uniforms and we had to create names. And so he called himself Harry Ward. His wife's name was Barbara Ward. And my wife's name was Janet McMichael. So I became Matthew McMichael. And the other thing about being down there in that movie that I remember and treasure as a memory is that I was the only person in this group of hundreds of people who spoke fluent French. And I formed this wonderful friendship, which of course ended when the movie was over, with Truffaut. Whenever possible, um, I visited with him. He had his own trailer on that set, and he was in there with a typewriter. And I don't remember. You'd have to look it up to figure out which movie he was writing. He was working on his next film. But he would emerge, and we would be standing around waiting for the shot. or whatever. And so we talked and talked, and, you know, it was, it was just great. And he was a wonderful man. He was, he was very excitable about movies. And we talked about, you know, scenes that we remembered, you know, and how... I had spent a year in Paris as a student, which hadn't been that long before. <laughs> so that was a, a big treat for me. And you know, that just remembering now that Bob Balaban, who was in that movie, he wrote a book about being in the movie. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. Yeah, he was talking about that hangar that you're talking about and saying that it almost had its own weather system. It was so huge in there. <laughs> I believe it. It was huge and it was very uncomfortable. And- Dark, you know, it had to be blacked in. That you know, every light leak had to be plugged. And Doug Trumbull was there with a team of special effects. Oh, hey, I also directed Second Unit on that movie. The Second Unit happened when he was in post, and he needed additional shots. And so I had a little unit, and I went out. I just did about four or five days of shooting with them, and it was all there was no sound. I don't remember if I had a sound crew or not. I just it was mostly shots. Of what was it was a double for Rick Dreyfus in his bathrobe pulling up stuff from around the house and throwing stuff into the house when he's building his Devil's Tower model. And I shot some stuff at a gas station going crazy when the, it's vibrating when the saucers are going over. That was a bigger deal because it had to be rigged, you know, the, a bunch of to shake. And what else did I shoot? God, this is getting it mixed up because I also shot some stuff for him on. 1941, <laughs> another, another movie. I just loved watching Stephen work. He was so quick and direct. He knew exactly what he wanted, how to get it, you know, which lens, where to be. I got, I got to see Stephen in action. 
I never changed. On you know, once I was on a lot of his sets back in those days, and he was really the young maestro, and all ever enthusiastic, and he just loved what he was doing, and he communicated, you know, instinctively he communicated that boyish energy to everyone around him, and um, so that was that was a, a wonderful thing too. What was that shooting like in that warehouse for you? Was it a lot of look over here and imagine it's the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life? There was that, yes. Everybody had to do that. Everyone. I don't remember if it was tennis balls or what. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, it was all... This is long before the CG era, as you know. And uh, these elaborate, elaborate uh, techniques had to be created to generate the arriving clouds I went and saw some of that shooting when they had the cloud tank. Uh, how did I went? Who was doing that? Was that Trumbull or ILM? There was literally a big, 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 big fish tank. It was big enough almost, you know, you could swim in it. It was you know, like six feet and it was full of water and it had two different liquids in it. Hal would remember being Hal. <laughs> he, it was two different liquids that you couldn't see that there were two liquids. They were both transparent, you know, like water and gasoline or something. Don't, don't, don't quote me on that. They would thrust these rods filled with pastel colors or fuller's earth or something. There was some kind of coloring agent. It was either a fluid or a powder. Oh, God, I'm getting it all wrong. <laughs> Look, don't quote me on this. You've got to do your own research. But they thrust these rods into this tank and it created these billowing clouds of color which were side-lit and back-lit, all this fancy lighting, but they would hit this other layer, you know, halfway down, and it would form the deck of the clouds. Very clever, right? They would, you know, billow up toward camera. They shot them at various speeds, you know, for slow motion or, or time-lapse, or I don't remember. But it was, I think it was ILM. But yeah, we were around for that. What you're asking about is how was this done back in the, Good old days, because uh, to this day, I am well aware there are people who think that you know this whole era of CG has ruined movies. And Del Toro uh, is a big believer if you can possibly do it live, do it live. Back in, in Close Encounters, the the ships were put in; they were live ships uh, shot on stages, built by the ILM bottle shop, and then shot on stages. And and the motion control was new then. That's another very um, interesting. There are all these. You didn't want to be Hollywood. You know, the special effects era locked off camera was always a problem. And and Stephen wanted as much freedom as possible, of course. And Trumbull had perfected a motion control system where you the camera would move in a certain way, and then that move would be reproduced months or whatever later on the models. And you could put the two shots together, and they would marry up. The thing I like about that third act is that it's almost a movie unto itself. There's different, let's say, acts within that act. The whole idea of the calling of the ship, the idea of the communications with the ship, the portal opens and people return. I mean, it's just all of these different beats that take place within that one act. Like I said, it's almost like a movie unto itself. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're reminding me of how that feels. I hadn't thought about this in years, but you're right. It is like musical symphonic thing where you come to the last movement. It's like, it's almost a new beginning. I wish I could take credit for that. (laughs) 
but no, no, that's that's right. That's one of the that's one of the reasons this movie feels, you know, magnificent in its way, like that David Lean size. What else do you remember contributing to the screenplay? What other things were you adding while you were down there? Oh, anthrax. <laughs> yeah, something really scary. I think Hal came up with that. <laughs> I remember that the the location. There are these, I, this is, boy, you're going to, you've seen, obviously, the movie more recently than I have. I have not seen this movie in decades. But there is a thing about radio signals being a set of numbers. And a, Balaban says, wait a second, I was into geography or whatever, and that sounds like latitude, longitude. At which point there's a big plant, model of planet Earth rolls into the room. <laughs> and that's, we wrote all that. Thank you so much, sir. You have a good rest of the day. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Reading about some of those early drafts of the script some of the writers really objected to the idea of the implanting of things into Roy's head. It was just like, okay, you can have aliens or you can have ESP, but you can't have both. It's just too much. We cannot have both things in one movie. And I was just like, really? I mean, it seems like in a world, you know, we, we talked last week, uh, El Goro about the black hole. It's like, <laughs> you can have space travel and you can have ESP, uh, why not? Let's let's do it up. It might fit into something that Spielberg has said in various interviews, the fact that he doesn't regard this film as being a science fiction film. He certainly didn't at the time that he made it because he was staying really true to what he considered to be reality. And it's, it's interesting where this film sits as an extension of a cultural moment from the, the 1970s where there was that belief of – very, a very serious belief and very serious people believing that, oh no, we've been, we've been visited. This is happening. That this is something that is really going on. It's interesting that we actually find these sort of conversations coming up, up again where the Pentagon is saying, oh no, we've encountered these weird, they don't call them UFO anymore. I forget what they call them, but these weird, uh, flying, flying craft and how it's all presented in the realm of this is reality. So perhaps the idea that because this was a quote unquote realistic take on aliens, that perhaps ESP was just a, you know, a bridge too far for some people. 
It's also a kitchen sink movie, though, because he really does throw in like a lot of different aspects of real UFO sightings, which includes, you know, cars chasing after them and the Foo Fighter, like that little red dot that follows. So he's trailing behind the others. You know, they say that's like Tinkerbell, which it is. Of course, it's Spielberg. Of course, it's Tinkerbell. But it's also, you know, that's what Foo Fighters were. These pilots would see these these glowing balls of colored light. And it's, you know, that's a direct reference. The, again, the cattle being unconscious. Now, you know, in the movie, that's not the aliens doing it, but it's still a reference. You know, you know, Spielberg did that purposefully to just get every single alien, you know, UFO kind of trope, uh, you know, that that people knew about back then to, to just kind of cram that into the movie, which I like. I think that was a good decision. You know, I think that makes it more colorful and interesting. Uh, but it's a kind of a kitchen sink. And the, the aliens are completely all over the place. Like, again, you know, what, you know, what are they doing on her roof and coming down her chimney? Like, how is that possible? What is Barry seeing when he's looking across his kitchen? Like, what is he looking at? Is he looking at the little girl, the little eight-year-old girl kind of alien? Or is he looking at the Puck alien? You know, they all have different names, nicknames. Puck was the third alien. The uh, middle ones were like, you know, those those little girls. And then the first one was the marionette that, that um, Bob Baker had made. Um, so we have all different kinds of aliens. We have all different kinds of behaviors of the aliens. We have all kinds of reactions to humans and and it's it's all over the place you just cannot it's it's everything kitchen sink yeah and that always struck me and it still does to this day when we get the three different versions of the aliens particularly since we get that first gigantic speaking of space jesus uh, marionette alien that does the wide arms and then it just disappears we never see it again and then all of a sudden we get the small aliens that come out and then we get the final alien that was felt like the the closest precursor to E.T. It is this sort of unsettling, otherworldly, naturally, kind of feel to the whole thing. And nowadays I understand exactly why it is the way it is that uh, I believe initially they were only going to have the greys, the ones that were played by uh, little girls. But then the the effects weren't working quite right, so they had to jazz it up a little bit with other aliens to kind of get across what they wanted to do. There's a little bit too much alien going on. I love I love it. It's my favorite part of the movie. I do think it's a bit much. I think I think it's interesting that he when he was sort of hacking away at this movie and, and, and getting rid of things he didn't like that he kept three different he says that you know well they're different races of alien which is also a little bit ridiculous because you know races don't look they're really the different species they look like they're all from different planets that they all evolved on different planets so it's kind of interesting that he refers to them as different races of aliens but in any case I do think it's a bit much even as much as I love them and I think the 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 first two are horrifying and very genuinely scary the third one is a, to me a little bit corny I would have, I would have left off the third guy but I know that's everybody's favorite it's a little indulgent that he did it that way I don't know I did like the whole thing with the cows being knocked out and apparently the the whole idea of the nerve gas and I didn't realize again sorry I'm I'm like studying 2001 at the same time we're finally finally going to do that episode and so the whole idea of like hey we need to keep these people away from the moon base where we found the monolith uh I still like the flash flood idea where you're going to get the water you got about 2 inches of rain in the last 16 months we can months. do a survey of dams and we reservoirs in the areas and tell them what's going to burst and besides that there's not enough water in those reservoirs wait, 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 wait. contaminated water fix people crop Disease? Yeah, epidemic. What plague kind of epidemic? Disease? What kind of disease? Plague, plague epidemic. Nobody's going to believe a plague in this day and age. I understand that uh, many of you are troubled by the concern and anxiety this story of an epidemic might cause to your relatives and friends on Earth. Well, I uh, completely sympathize with your negative views. 
I love when they're in the helicopter and like when he takes off the mask and all the people are like, no, 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 don't do that. You'll die. <laughs> the irony is that uh, even if there, uh, somebody had announced that nerve gas had uh, dropped, there would still be people saying, nah, I don't believe in it. Yeah. Oh, there's always somebody. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I also heard about is as this film was developing, that initially it was a little bit more straightforward, but it was kind of the post-Watergate environment that brought Spielberg to bring in sort of the government cover-up element of it. So it was reflecting a society that was no longer tr completely trusting their government. But the fact that they still think that uh, that people would totally trust their government for the to uh, buy the whole nerve gas story, which nowadays we know they really wouldn't. Yeah, it's just a liberal hoax. I mean, guys, we did it. We managed to kill like exactly. 3.5 million people just so they would get those vaccines, and now we can track them. Well, it was all just a hoax anyway. We, we, it was, we met aliens, right? Yeah. 3.5 million people have, have left the planet. I'm not saying it's space aliens, right? But it goes without saying it's fucking space aliens. As we record this, there's in the news all over the places UFOs. Like you said, I think it's called UAPs now or something like that. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. UAPs. I don't even know what that stands for. But yeah, Unidentified it, aerial phenomenon. Yeah. Thank you. Ah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just it is. We're about to have a comeback because the government is, as of this recording, are about to come out with some um, report, which is predicted to say, you know, we don't know, you know, the same thing that they always say. I don't know. It's just, I, th I think that is a fun distraction. I hope it does take over the imaginations of the whole world because that's a nice, that's a fun conspiracy theory. Let's, that's a, that's a nice, safe, fun, get the whole country together on the same page kind of conspiracy theory. So let's, I think that that's healthy, actually. And I, I hope the, I don't know, if the aliens come, you know, maybe it would be good for us. Maybe it'd do us, it would do us a world of good. I really appreciate what you're saying as far as that being so timely, because back on when I was doing the, the Kolchak tapes, I mean, that was the one thing I kept trying to stress was like early 1970s. The world was really fucked up and man, oh man, people were grasping for anything. And that's when you had like chariots of the gods and, you know, Bermuda Triangle and New Age coming out, all the different like self help stuff like Est and I'm okay, you're okay, all these different types of things going on all at once. So to have ESP and UFOs in this movie, Absolutely fine, because that was all in the zeitgeist. I mean, that was the thing that, you know, you, you couldn't go any place without hearing about this kind of stuff. I mean, there were suicide cults. There were just all of these fantastic things that were happening. I mean, maybe, maybe to your point, I mean, if we do embrace UFOs, maybe we'll get some more like suicide cults. That'd be pretty fantastic, no, too. No, no, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. Hey, we're, we're already seeing the return of adrenochrome, which is something that Hunter S. Thompson wrote about in Fear and Loathing. So, you know, the 70s are back. Speaking of Bermuda Triangle, though, those pl missing planes that they discovered at the beginning of the ship were disappeared out of the Bermuda Triangle. So they do they throw that in there, too. That's in there. It's in there. It's all in there. Ben Randall commenting on Time Life's popular series, Mysteries of the Unknown. I've always been a little curious about unexplained phenomena because of personal experiences. What do you mean? Well, like... For example, can you sense when something's about to happen? Well, yeah, I mean, everyone's a little psychic, but... Uh, what about UFOs? I don't know. Lots of people swear they've seen them. Ever experienced deja vu? Sort of. Like, I went into this old 19th century farmhouse, and I, I just knew I'd been there before. In another life? <laughs> I'm not ready for that. <laughs> ready for this? Mystic places? Uh-huh. It's from Time Life. Talks about things like the Nazca Lines. 
Were they runways for alien spaceships? And did those aliens interbreed with the ancient Peruvians? Did they? Read the book. Read about the medieval warriors who appeared before Stephen Jenkins in 1936. Then he saw them again 38 years later. That true. Read the book. Read about Aleister Crowley and his bride. They spent a honeymoon night in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid. What happened? Read the book. Read about Cyrus Teeth's belief that people live in the center of the earth. Admiral Burt looked into it. Know what he found? I know. Read the book. I love Robert's Blossom. And when he shows up in here, I love him. You know, I love all the people at the top of that ridge that are just like waiting for the aliens to come back and they've got the signs and they're doing all this stuff. And then they have that meeting with the government official and he's like, this is a UFO. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. I saw that. And then he's like, oh no, I took this picture this morning. That's a Frisbee. Ha ha ha. But then Robert's Blossom is like, starts talking about stuff and then immediately veers into Bigfoot territory. UFOs, we can believe. But once he starts talking about Bigfoot, it's just, that's too much. I mean, he, he encountered the aliens. He was there when they flew by. But he needed to be, you know, to elaborate, to uh, spin a more a different yarn to be get, be the focus again, which is why I've always had issues with a lot of the accounts of ufology and all of those other things, mostly because I know that impulse is within people. People lie. People make stuff up because they like to be noticed. They like to be the center of attention. And that's where I kind of put a lot of these sort of UFO stories. So it's, it is interesting to watch this film and in it's, and particularly interesting to hear Spielberg talk about it where he was a true believer. You know, I grew up in a very cynical age, you know, where there, for all of the discussion of UFOs, there were a pile of experts debunking them. So it wasn't nearly as fun growing up in the 90s as it probably would have been in the 70s, you know, where there was the still the possibility that no, 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 this might be real. Oh, yeah. We had In Search Of. We had Arthur Clarke's Mysterious World. We had all kinds of good stuff. We had, and then in the movies, Chariots of the Gods, The Man Who Saw Tomorrow. I mean, there were some great things going on. So if you were a little kooky in the 70s, you could just like feed into all of that stuff. I mean, it was like the birth of Weekly World News and the Inquirer and all those kind of rags. It was fantastic. Yeah, most we had was the X-Files, which... uh <laughs> You know, that that certainly, I guess, gave a shot in the arm to the whole UFO community. Oh, yeah, definitely. Did I ever tell you guys about the time I went to the Roswell Museum in Roswell, New Mexico, the UFO Museum? I don't remember that one. We were in Roswell, and they have a UFO museum, like, right there on the main drag, just a couple miles down from the Walmart. And we go in there, and it's just the fucking cheesiest thing in the world. There's all these, like, you know, here's what happened when they said that this weather balloon crashed. But, of course, it wasn't a weather balloon. They have, like, the pictures of the weather balloon and all the, you know, the news accounts and stuff. That's cool. But then they, you start getting in there and it's just like, here's this person's interpretation of what an alien looks like. And here's this person's interpretation. It's like, okay, like, you know, he saw this and she saw that. And here's the picture that they drew afterwards. And it's like, okay, none of this stuff is factual. This is just all like kind of crazy stuff. Right. And so we're eventually we get through the whole thing. And then it's like, all right, you know, exit to the gift shop. I want to go through the gift shop, get some cool stuff. Oh, hey, there's a library over here. Let me go check out their library at the UFO museum. And I'm just like, oh, cool. You know, like, I love Nikola Tesla stuff. So I'm looking around at like Tesla videos and stuff. And there's this table there with all of these like young people and this older lady. And they're all just completely quiet. And I'm like, this is really kind of weird. All right. And then. 
out of nowhere, the woman just goes, it was not an airplane. And they're just like, yes, yes, we know. I used to be a science writer. I mean, I haven't done that particular genre in a while, but I worked at Discover Magazine on stuff. And so I was, you know, interviewing physicists and all that stuff. Scientists do believe, a lot of scientists, a lot of scientists, you know, believe it's impossible that there aren't other intelligent life forms out there. I mean, just it's, you know, and that the idea that we're the only intelligent life in this entire huge gigantic universe is quite, what's the word, narcissistic, you know, in a way. So I, I you know, it's not... It's not completely nuts. That's why people are talking very seriously about it. Because why haven't we seen any signs if there is intelligence life out there? Are there reasons why we haven't? Or um, is it that we're all so far away? Or is it that we're also it's so, so impossible for us to reach each other? But it's not, you know, it, I just want to stick up for just just for the crazies for one second that it's not it's not completely nuts. Because there's plenty of scientists, let me tell you, you know, very serious people who are like, of course, there's life out there. We we just haven't heard from them. And there was a great um, op-ed in the Washington Post just a couple weeks ago of, you know, a physicist, a very serious physicist um, who looks into this stuff. He's like, I don't think we should be sending signals out there because they could be hostile. And I was like, I, I was like, I'm, I'm on board. I just watched War of the Worlds, the Spielberg version. And I, I don't know. I, I think uh, we should keep our head down and our or turn the turn the volume down on the TV and shut the lights out if they drive by because let make them think we're not home. But uh, that's my that's just my wacko in little injection there. That it's it's not completely crazy, but I agree that probably almost all cases are from nuts. I agree with that, you know, of reportings. I'm very much in the Fox Mulder of I want to believe. And considering the enormity of the universe, the fact that we would be the only sentient life forms out there just seems improbable to the point of hilarity. But it's that enormity that keeps I keep coming back to. It's how difficult it would be to travel from place to place. And I would love to find evidence of that. But that's still coupled with the fact of just human nature. I know people like to make stuff up. It's it's trying to balance those two things that I I, I try not to be a, a killjoy about this. It's the same thing with ghost stories that you trust me. I would love to, that ghost stories would would be real, but I know people make things up and I know people get things wrong. That's far more improbable. Far more improbable. It is. It is. But it has it has a, a just as devoted cadre of believers as ufology. Uh, ufology. That's why we think of UFO people as nuts, because we think of it that way. But it's really not. You know, it's not the same category. It's it's you know, it's scientifically plausible that there's intelligent life. Well, and that's what that's what that's another thing I find interesting. And it's it's something that has come up in uh, recent conversations I've been having. It's that sort of an atheist tr uh, tr translation of of stories that used to be the realm of folklore and religion and how many how many of these stories of alien encounters are similar to what people used to describe of meeting ghosts or meeting fairies. And we can see that even in this film, and obviously that got played out later in the Spielberg production of Poltergeist. The behavior of the aliens when they were uh, menacing Jillian and Barry, that did feel like Poltergeist. It did feel like ghosts. So you do see this, this sort of impulse, this sort of energy get redirected and kind of wrapped up in the UFO stuff as, that used to be in the realm of the paranormal. When I had Carl Sagan explain on Cosmos how many stars are out there, how many planets, how many possible livable planets. This is one of the great questions. How many advanced civilizations capable, at least of radio astronomy, are there in the Milky Way galaxy? Let's call 
the number of such civilizations by the capital letter N. It's a number. It depends on many things. It depends on the total number of stars in the Milky Way. It depends on the fraction of stars that have planets. It depends on the average number of planets in a given solar system that are ecologically suitable for life. It depends on the fraction of suitable planets in which life actually arises. It depends on the fraction of inhabited planets on which intelligence emerges and on the fraction of those planets in which the intelligent beings evolve a technical communicative civilization. Finally, it depends on the fraction of a planet's lifetime that's graced by a technical civilization. Call that F sub L. This equation, due mainly to Frank Drake of Cornell, is only a sentence. The verb is equals. By carefully counting the number of stars in small but representative regions of the sky, we find that the total number of stars in the Milky Way is about 400 billion. In studies of double stars, in investigations of the motions of nearby stars, and in many theoretical studies, we get a strong hint that many, perhaps even most stars, are accompanied by planets. The number of civilizations in the galaxy then would be measured in the millions. Millions of technical civilizations. That number is a pretty damn big number. When Blossom, uh, the farmer, says, you know, about Bigfoot, they, they look on Richard on Roy Neary's face, you know, the look of, of like frustration that this guy just changed the whole tone of the room to make him look like an idiot is a beautiful piece of acting. And, you know, so I just wanted, I did want to throw in that there's some amazing moments in this movie of acting, you know, Terry Garr, when she's saying, no, you're not. No, you're not. I mean, that's just so beautifully executed. Um, what he got out of Carrie Guffey is, is just phenomenal. Uh, you know, just uh, anyway, just wanted to just turn back to that for a second. Oh, yeah. The performance in this are, are fantastic. I mean, my favorite bit of the movie is unfortunately the stuff that isn't in the movie very much. And that's the whole Lacombe stuff. I love watching that story. I love when they're in the desert Mongolia and they find the ship. I love when they're in India and they are hearing the tones. I love when he's explaining the, the hand positions and the tones and all this and the aliens send to Roy and uh, Jillian and all these different people, these images, these artistic images that are inside of their brains, but they have to break it down and send numbers to the scientists and be like, be here at this date. <laughs> you know, here's the, the hours, minutes, and seconds. And thank goodness uh, Bob Balaban was a former cartographer, so he could actually understand that. And I swear it took me years to actually recognize Bob Balaban in this movie. I'd seen him in subsequent things, but that it's that big beard he's got, that big 70s beard. A great big bushy beard. It feels like he went right from this right into altered states because I think he's got that same great big bushy beard. They didn't really need to roll that globe in there, by the way. They could have they could have found Wyoming right there while it was still on the stand. But it's a great moment. It's a great little scene where they're rolling that giant clunky metal globe. And they kind of threw that in. That was a that was filmed uh, after the first edit. You know, they wanted to, to add that that scene in. But I, I do love that's a nice piece of writing. You know, he's a cartographer who happened to speak French and and it comes full circle. It's It's a nice touch. Well, you know, the numbers that they give on that paper is actually not the 
destination of Devil's Tower. I just hate that people have to put that on, like, fucking IMDb. It's like, why why do you have to ruin things? If James Cameron had directed this, then he would have gone back and changed the numbers to make sure they were accurate. Like, he changed the stars in the sky on Titanic. Here's a plot hole. Why, why would the aliens form a Big Dipper in the sky? How would they know that we see from our vantage point and that we picked out a bunch of stars and made a pot out of it? Like, and Because they, they don't know our language, so they wouldn't be able to read our literature from afar. So they, you know, at, at the end, of one, one of the first things they do to show that they're present is to the ships form the Big Dipper, which you almost can't quite make out, but it's, it's a Big Dipper. And it's like, wait a minute, how do, how do, they, how do they know about that? That's a plot hole to me. I like the whole end of the film. I love, I'm always like, why did they let Roy and Jillian just kind of wander in here? But okay. <laughs> you know, after I think a while. they were more focused on the giant aliens yeah, than two so randos show up. I love the guy who runs into the porta potty because he's terrified. There, there has to be a few people like that who are just like, no, this is too much. I can't do this. Yeah. One of them was the lawyer in uh, Jurassic Park. Yes. Gilbert revisiting <laughs> the hits. Right. That's right. That's right. But I love the whole idea of using music as the language, because music is basically another form of mathematics, which is kind of cool that they're doing that. And again, to use John Williams to come up with that, to be able to work that theme into other things as you're going through the whole film. I mean, it's it's pretty great. And then, um, yeah, I just, I, and I also love the scene when they, let the aliens take over when the keyboard basically starts playing on its own. It's like, all right, cool. Uh, this is pretty neat. Visualizing that sort of communication and taking into account the inherent difficulties of that, but then providing a visual means to convey this information. I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, you can clearly see where Denis Villeneuve, I've always mispronounced his name, the influence that he took from that when he did Arrival. And then that essentially was that entire the entire point of that movie. And he, you know, he was even uh, interviewed in the special features for the 40th anniversary of this. And he readily admits so much of his own cinematic language is traced back to Close Encounters. You know, it it is a very clever that you know he I, he seems to be the first to have come up with that idea that music would be a language, and, and it makes perfect. It does make sense. It makes a lot of sense. You know, so what do you think of the him entering the ship? I mean, what's your what's, where do you fall on that? To me, it's it's the culmination of the wonder. This implacable drive. It couldn't resolve any other way. That he had abandoned everything and abandoned his family, his station, his job, everything in society in pursuit of this. He had to take that step. Should they have shown it? Hell no. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing. Should they have shown the interior? No, um, I, I, I'm yeah. very much on Steven Spielberg's side of this. So there's a reason that he cut the interior of the sequence when he got to do his director's cut later on. And, you know, if he, he said many times if he had his druthers, he never would have even filmed it. It was just what he had to do in order to get the extra uh, funding from Columbia. I think it was to shoot the footage he did want to shoot for his special edition or director's cut. You know, it was, it, that was his devil's bargain. And to his credit, I mean, he still makes that cut available. You know, he clearly doesn't like it, but he still puts it out there. And I think I was reading some that for the longest time, that was the only readily available cut of the film on home media. Like, if you bought, if you bought uh, Close Encounters when it first came to VHS, it was that version, not the theatrical. All right, up next, it is second assistant director Jim Bloom. You can hear more from him on our Empire Strikes Back episode. Enjoy. How did you meet Chuck Myers? 
Chuck was the first assistant director on Close Encounters, and I was the, the key second, the only second, assistant director. And Chuck and I had met on American Graffiti, which was my first movie in 19, in the summer of 72. And Chuck and I sort of hit it off and became fast friends. Chuck's a fascinating guy. Unfortunately, he passed away in the 90s, which was a great loss. But he was a really unique movie guy. His dad used to be head of production, if I'm not mistaken, at Desilu Studios back in the Andy Griffith Gomer Pyle days. And Chuck used to work extra and at one point had an SAG card, had a few speaking lines, Gomer Pyle. And I think that was something that he may have worked on as well. But he got into the Directors Guild, you know, back then, I guess in the, the 60s or so. He was, you know, an L.A. kid, Marine Corps, you know, very smart, and very funny and a big, big guy, somewhat imposing, like a bear of a man. He and I, you know, just got along very well. And so after the conversation, he became the... Although on record, I think he was the second AD on the conversation. He was really the first AD. Production manager was a man named Clark Palo, which I always laughed at. I always thought it was what a great name for a production manager. I've often found in my life and career that the people have names that suit them, you know, very well. You know, and to have a production manager named Palo is, you know, particularly suiting, you know, in the movie business. But Clark was a great guy. And Clark was hired on the conversation and Francis hired Chuck and Chuck hired me. And I was one of the assistant director trainees because of that I sort of became a backdoor assistant director trainee. I didn't have to go take the, uh, the air force pilot aptitude test that they gave all the trainees personality profile test to find out if you were well suited to becoming an assistant director. I just sort of got in because Francis worked out a deal with the DGA through a company that he had set up to make the conversation with Paramount called the Director's Company that he had set up with Billy Friedkin and Peter Bogdanovich and himself. And I don't know if they made any other movies, but the conversation was one of them. So I became a San Francisco Bay Area assistant director trainee, and I went to introduce myself to the production manager on streets in their, I think it was their second season, and I met a guy named Dick Gallagher. And I said to Dick, I'm around, and if you need me for the odd day here and there, I'd be happy to come in and work. And Dick, being a good production manager, thought, oh, my God, I've got a trainee in San Francisco, and I don't have to pay per diem or living expense, and I'm just going to get him on. And he hired me, and I went to work for two seasons and did 46 episodes. And it was great because I got to work with Carl Malden, who's one of the great actors of all time, and lots of other great actors and directors, who then some who later went on and had you know, great movie careers. I'm forgetting Donnan's first name. Oh, Richard Donner. And uh, he came up and he directed a few episodes. And it was funny. I, I found out when he was working, he dated my, my aunt, my mother's sister. They all, my mom grew up in New Rochelle and, and um, we were talking, blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, I grew up in New Rochelle. And I said, oh, maybe you knew my mother's family, Rosenberg. He said, Rosenberg, I used to date Dorothy Rosenberg. And I said, that's my aunt. So, you know, it was, it, was, it was a very sort of funny connection that I wasn't expecting. In the second season, the, one of the first ADs was let go, and they needed a new first. And I said, oh, call Chuck. And they called Chuck, and then Chuck came to work on Streets for a period of time. And then after Streets, Chuck 
worked with Hal Ashby on Bound for Glory, and they were shooting in Stockton, and they needed some help, and he brought me on as a second second. And I worked on Bound for a good portion of Bound for Glory for all of the migrant camp and train work when they were shooting in and around Stockton. And then after that, Clark Palo was hired on Close Encounters, and Clark called Chuck. And I think Stephen was a very good friend of George's and knew Francis, and everybody recommended Chuck, and Chuck became the first AD on Close Encounters, and he called me and said, do you want to be my second? And it was like, like really? Of course. That's how I got the gig. And then there were a group of us, you know, production. There's like a production team of Chuck and me and a few other people, many of whom worked on Bound for Glory all together, and we all jumped on Close Encounters. Tell me more about your experiences on Close Encounters. Well, what was interesting about Close Encounters, I, I mean, I was the second assistant director, so I was doing the work of a second, which is a lot of the paperwork and getting the actors ready and on the set and dealing with the extras and the background action and, you know, letting the actors know when their day was over. And, you know, second AD is you know, assisting the first AD who's assisting the director. It's, it's the team that kind of physically helps the director put the movie together. What was particularly interesting about Close Encounters was that when we got to the the Box Canyon, where the mothership lands, that it was so big and huge. Every day, we had at least 50 to 75 extras to work with. And because of the visual effects, that's that's where I first learned about visual effects on Close Encounters because we were working with Doug Trumbull and he had brought his new motion control unit down. It was the first time a motion control unit, the first time they'd ever used one. I think, I wonder if George, George didn't use one yet. We, we used one on empire. I don't think he had one on star Wars. The idea behind motion control is that you could, you could move the camera, you know, you, your, your camera had an X and Y access for panning and tilting. And you could also had a dolly trap and you could mimic those movements to match visual effects backgrounds when you got into post-production, or you could, you know, use plates that had been created on live action and then add other elements into, you know, middle ground type stuff, which was what we did on Close Encounters, a lot of the spacecraft flying around. So we had a lot of interactive lighting movements where we would add the little different spacecraft in Close Encounters before the mothership eventually lands. So it was quite interesting. So that what we used to say is that there are no small shots in the Box Canyon. You know, every everything was hu- everything was just huge, huge as far as we were shooting inside a dirigible hangar. So it wasn't on location. We were in Mobile, Alabama, 95 degrees and 90 percent humidity most of the time. You know, 100 degrees maybe inside the Box Canyon set, which we had tarped in so that we could make it look like nighttime kind of make it look like an interior, even in the middle of the day. And because of the visual effects, we built up the rock canyon around the the flat landing section of the set. And the way we got into the work was to shoot most of the work, the big, far work, Roy and Jilly climbing up the rocks and then peering over to reveal the box canyon down below. And we did all of their work up on the rocks, shooting the two of them either in close-up or over the shoulder. But the Box Canyon was always behind them. So 
so what Chuck loved to do and what he did, and because it was rather complicated, he took these elaborate storyboards that were covering, you know, 30, 40 pages of a script. I, I don't know that remember the exact number. And he had to create the action for all of these characters down below so that as we jumped around in shooting sequences, Roy and Jillian on top, whatever we shot up there would then later match when we got down to the canyon. And a lot of it was also intercut with what was happening down on the floor of the canyon between Truffaut, who played Lacombe, and the other characters down there. And then the first communication with the light board communicating to the mothership and the other ships that were going. It's just funny. I was just talking to somebody about this last night about the five tone chant and how brilliant it was that, you know, Stephen had come up with this idea, you know, tying music to light. So that's how they communicated. It was music and light work, working together, which I thought was just so elegant and which it was quite remarkable because we had a Moog synthesizer down there and a guy from Moog who actually came and played and Roy Arbogast, who was the said effects supervisor, physical effects supervisor, had rigged the, you know, the keyboard to the light board. And so there were 88 little lights on the board. And it was quite beautiful every time they pressed a key on the board, you know, the lights would light up. And as the, as the music and, and whatnot, because John Williams had pre-recorded those different sounds of the, the humans communicating to the extraterrestrials, it was great to see the light board go, you know, as the sound was playing, you know, we had to, you know, shoot all of that. It was great. Anyway, so because we were doing that, Chuck said to me, Bloom, he said, you go deal with the camera and I'll take the other guys and we'll go down on the floor. And as every time we go to a new scene, you tell me what scene number it is. And then I'll know what to do with all the background action. And the other part of it also was that it was, uh, we, he, um, I was a little bit more politic than Chuck was in the sense that I could act as a good go between, between Steven and Vilmos and our gaffer, whose name was Earl Gilbert. And Earl was brought onto the picture because he had done lots of big, big movies before. And this was a really big movie with lots of big grip crews, huge electric crews. We, we had more lights on that set in Mobile, Alabama than I think anybody had ever used that before. And I remember people saying, well, no, we can't get any lights. They're all down in Alabama. We had every conceivable arc that there was surrounding this entire set to illuminate things. And we were also working with a new kind of light back then in 76, which was called an HMI, which had an instant off. The thing about the arcs was they used to burn, you know, had to warm up to get to full illuminate and whatnot. And it never really quite worked to put a flag in front of it and then pull it away. And so you could like pop an HMI on it and it would go woof. And it would just immediately illuminate something like as if it were a flying saucer with all of these different lights. And, and, and Vilmos and Earl didn't get along. They sometimes would barely talk to each other. You know, Earl would say to me, well, you know, tell me what the cameraman is. And Vilmos would say to me, well, you tell me what Earl's read. I felt like I was, you know, this traveling diplomat, you know, between different groups, you know, because the, these are the, all the key things around the camera that need to happen before you get ready to shoot and roll the camera. So in some sense, I sort of became the first AD as far as being next to the camera and Chuck was down dealing with what we were doing on the floor with this huge cadre of actors that we, you know, there must have been about 10 or 15 speaking parts every day 
plus, you know, the 75 extras, plus we had the, the 53 to 5-year-old children who were the ETs when the mothership came down running around. And we were, like, pumping a smoke, that old burnt mineral oil that they used to use to smoke in sets. And, you know, and the thing about the mineral oil was that mineral oil is a bit of a laxative. And anyway, everybody had their run. And it was just a mess. It was just, it, you know, people are getting sick and you're breathing the mineral oil. And some people had affected their GI systems as well. So it was quite complicated. That's when we finally got there. I sort of kind of took over. At first, the first day I did it was in Wyoming. And Stephen was like, Chuck, what's going on? Who's this guy? I want you out here. And Chuck said, no, Stephen, Jim's really good. He can take care of it. And Stephen got used to me, and it was never a problem anymore because it, it all it all worked fine. I do remember the day that this this sort of small squall blew in off the Gulf, and we were we were in the Box Canyon, and this huge tarp that had been rigged at the back of the canyon to sort of fade away into blackness when you look down the canyon toward where the mothership would land, this is before the mothership was put in place, blew away. I remember being there and hearing the wind howling and blowing. And then all of a sudden, there was this great, this ripping sound. And we would all look to the back, and there was this, this huge piece of duvetine, black duvetine, that just went, like, ripped from you know, top to bottom and exposing the gray, raining, windy, ex, you know, out, real outside world. And then this, 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 you know, going for, you know, what felt like 95 degrees inside the tent, this huge tent that we had, the temperature dropping like down to 70, which was like this breath of like fresh air just blowing you know, into into the hangar, cooling us all off, just blowing in. But, you know, it was like, oh, great, now what do we do now? You know, like, well, we're done shooting this for the day, and there we go back to, you know, back to the production board and say, okay, what do we shoot? Where do we go? What do we have left to do? Who's, you know, who's here? How do we figure this all out? Having worked with Richard Dreyfus on graffiti and Terry Go, it's funny, Worked with Richard on graffiti, Terry Gar on the conversation, and Melinda Dillon on Bound for Glory. So I knew most of the cast, you know, very very well. And other interesting stories, actors. I don't remember his first name, and I can't remember it. But his brother was John Connolly, the governor of Texas, who was with Kennedy when he got assassinated. And I remember chatting with him about all, all of that during the shooting. Another small personal funny story was my mom decided to take a weekend and come down to visit us while we were shooting which was like oh okay fine it's kind of unusual and my mom and i remember that Connolly was was hitting on my mother while we were while we were working which i see he was this very charming texan when you know you know the old saying sell ice to the eskimos and he was and my mom my mom was like this guy's hitting on me is he flirting on me it's like what's you know Meryl Connell, he was a very, very good actor. There were a lot of good, good actors on that, on the show. It's still, I still enjoy watching Close Encounters on. It's one of my, one of my, one of my favorite movies. You shot on location in Wyoming. What was that like? All of the exterior Wyoming Devil's Tower work 
was when Roy and Jillian drive there and get caught and are taken to the to the secret military camp with all the trucks with corporate names written all over them, like Wiggly Piggly and Rockwell. I forget all the, the big corporate names. Well, I guess it was Rockwell at the time and to disguise what they were all doing. And the helicopters were flying all over. And then we get introduced to Truffaut at that point, or we come back and meet him once again with Bob Balaban, with Lacombe and his translator. And then they come in and they interview Roy and they interview Jillian. We had T-shirts made, some of Truffaut's lines. One of great, great line that Truffaut had was they belong here more than we, meaning the people like Roy and Jillian who had been touched and who had these visions and were driven to go to this landing site. I remember Truffaut's line is, they belong here more than we, was how he pronounced and so we had these phonetically pronounced T-shirts that we had written or stuff that Francois had written. And working with Francois, I mean, to be on a movie, you know, working with Steven and working with, you know, Vilmos, who, whose work I knew, and of course I knew Steven's work, and to meet Francois and to work with him and get to talk to him, I mean, what a treat that was, just remarkable. And when I left, he gave, he gave me two books. He gave me a copy of, of Jules and Jim that he had signed. At the time, I was living with a woman whose name was Janet Healy. She became a famous producer at Illumination Entertainment and did all of Minion movies as a producer later in her career. But he changed the title to from Jules and Jim to, to uh, Janet and Jim. He wrote Janet A. Jean. And then he also gave us wrote a copy of the, the Wild Child that he signed for us. Which was, and I, and to this day, I, on the last day of shooting, took his, the back of his director's chair, which I still have somewhere. So I've got a Francois Truffaut director's back. You know, it's a little piece of memorabilia that I've always, always cherished. Did I read that you also worked on the set in India? I did work on the India set after Close Encounters, which was a grueling, grueling shoot. We started in Wyoming. Wyoming was very difficult because we were on location, and it's where we began. And I remember working, sleeping four hours a night, working 16 hours a day, very tough location, beginning of the show. Then we went to Alabama, got to Alabama. We did a lot. We did mostly the exterior and interior Neary house with Richard and Terry Garr and the kids, the family, and showing... Roy's, the character Roy's demise when he gets called and he's out by the train tracks and then everything starts going wah, 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 and the train tracks close and the lights come up from behind him and he looks and he waves them on out his window and the lights go up, they go up. You know, we've mounted some HMI lights, a Chapman crane to get those lights to pull up and then lift up and then go forward over the top of the truck and then they mounted lights again on a crane up above the truck when he sticks his head out the window and the light pops on and he gets that sunburn on one half of his face. Special effects guys and the grips created this great rig. They duplicated the interior of Roy's utility truck and put it on a gimbal that would turn around 360 degrees to show the anti-gravity effect. 
when the light was on of all the stuff lifting off the dashboard and, you know, flying around the cabin and then resettling down. So we did a lot of that work and it was sort of the entry into Roy's, you know, downhill trip into becoming consumed and not knowing what he's doing. The great dining room scenes where he's molding mashed potatoes to look like Devil's Tower and then is destroying the garden and taking all of the garden stuff out outside inside and the kids think he's crazy and terry's leaving and taking the kids away and and then also the work at julian's house with carrie guffey when the you know the aliens steal steal carrie the little boy well, what a beautiful scene that was they pulled him out through the doggy door it was one of the classic filmmaking pieces i think i just love i just love that and you know they show up and all within the kitchen everything starts <laughs> You know, kitchen opens up, stuff flies out of the kitchen, the oven turns on, all these things, and the light shines through the doggy door. Little Carrie, who is three or four years old and the cutest kid in the whole world, kind of crawls over to the door, you know, and all of a sudden he gets pulled outside and there's a tug of war between a mom and something. You know, what a great scene that was. It was just just wonderful. So did all that, a lot of that work, and then eventually all that was happening the Box Canyon set inside the hangar on the old Naval Air Station in Mobile was being prepared and ready and finished and pre-lit. And then eventually we moved onto the Box Canyon. But back to India. So sorry, I, after Close Encounters, took some time off. Chuck then went to work with Hal Ashby on coming home and called me and said, do you want to come do this? And I said, of course. I was a huge fan of Hal and He was a great human being as well, being a wonderful director, and went to work on Coming Home. And in the middle of Coming Home, Chuck got a call from Columbia and from Stephen saying, I'm going to India. I need to shoot the India unit. And will you come with me? And Chuck said, well, I can't leave, but Jim will come. And Stephen said, fine. And so we off I went to India for a week, which was a remarkable experience in 19, February of 1975. I got on a plane, like, I don't know, Monday night or something. It was like a two-day shoot in India was what it was supposed to be. Got on a plane, left L.A. at I from L.A. to New York, landed in New York, went home that day, slept at my parents' house, went back to JFK that night and flew to London. Got to London, met up with Stephen and Julia Phillips and spent like a night there maybe. Next day, got on a plane and flew to with Bombay, which is what it was called at the time, with Doug Slocum, who was the director of photography, who had been one of David Lean's photographers, and Chick Waterston, who was his camera operator, and Robin Vitchen, who was the assistant cameraman. And there was a sound man whose name I can't remember, but these were the this is the British A team production men. I mean, Slocum, who had done all these great David Lean movies and yeah, what great stories. And the, the thing that I learned then, that I learned more after working on the Star Wars movies is that, you know, unlike in the U.S., when you go on location, you're usually going somewhere around the States or to California, whatever. But in Britain, when you go on location, you're going off to some far fun place in the world. So these guys have traveled everywhere. They've, you know, traveled to North Africa, to South Africa, to India before, you know, all over the world. That was their backyard, whereas our backyard would have been the back lot. 
if you were in LA or somewhere on location in Northern California or, uh, you know, wherever you were shooting, let's say, but theirs was anywhere in the world you needed to go. So it wasn't such a big deal for them to get on the plane and fly there. And working with Doug was such a treat. He was great, great cameraman, a wonderful gentleman. And movie people often like to talk about the movies that they've worked on with other movie people who are interested. And so it was a wonderful treat to work with him. And we got to, uh, you know, got to India, you know, what was like two days later for me. It's, it's, I mean, what is it? It's like 16 hour time change, 18 hour time change. It's like, in fact, who knows what time it is. And then we went out to scout the location, which was about an hour to an hour outside of Bombay along the Bombay Pune Road, you know, which is probably like a six lane highway now, but. Then it was a two-lane highway going out of Bombay out to this little village and scouted the locations and scouted the, the shots. And, oh, yeah, Francois was with us as well. He flew in with us, and Bob Balaban was with us. And I think that Lance – I'm trying to remember if Lance Hendrickson was with us then or not because he was part of that Truffaut group. And we went out and shoot and then went out to shoot the next day. We We had an Indian – line producer production manager whose name was Baba Sheikh, who was this very experienced Indian, Indian production manager. The Indians know as much about making movies as the Americans do because Bollywood was a huge, huge industry and they were all around Bombay. So it was, you know, easy to get together with, you know, put the, put the unit together that they needed with cameras and equipment and everything else. And we went to India as opposed to somewhere else because Colombia had rupees that were frozen in India that could only be spent in India. They couldn't, they couldn't leave the country. So it made sense for Colombia to use that money up by sending Stephen there to shoot the sequence. The, you know, these like two, three, four thousand, I forget how many, you know, looking at the sky and on command from the priest on the hill, singing the five-tone chant, which is remarkable. And it took a while to get the first shot set up. It was outrageously hot. You know, must have felt like, you know, 100 degrees maybe running around. And Stephen didn't have a hat. And I gave my hat to Stephen. If you see any pictures of Stephen from India, he's wearing my red Streets of San Francisco TV show cap on his head because I gave it to him because I said, Oh, the director needs a hat and I'll give him mine. I'm young and indestructible. And it turned out I wasn't either from, you know, flying, lack of sleep, traveling, not staying hydrated and being so thirsty that I drank four or five Coca-Colas one right after another, you know, either I had caffeine overdosed on caffeine and heat. And anyway, I just, started to get really woozy and I never passed out, but I just got really weak and I just, I had to get off my seat. And so that afternoon I just like kind of conked out. And I remember I went into the tents and stuff and Julia, who was there, who was the producer, she looked at me and thought I was going to die. You know, I got very pale and my blood pressure dry. Anyway, I, I wasn't well, and but I, I spent the afternoon in the tent and the next day I was like two weeks to go back out again. So Baba Sheik, Sheik took over for the second day of sequences, which was all of the extras running through the village up to the top of the hill before they did the five-tone chant. Truffaut and Balaban were making their way up to the top of that small mount where the priest was. The other Indian extras were like running by them, 
on their way toward, you know, where they were about to do the chant. That was sort of the work that came before the work we did on the first day, which is they're up on the, on the, on the mount and the priest is leading the thousands of extras in the five tone chant down below. So I'm, I missed the, I missed that second day, unfortunately. And then after that, a day later, we flew back to London. And then the day after that, we all flew back to LA. And the day after that, I was back on the set on coming home. So it was pretty, pretty quick traveling. Did you go to the premiere of the film? The movie would have premiered in 76. It was shot in 76. It came out in 77, November of 77. No, I don't, I don't think I did go to the premiere. I think in November of 77. I know Star Wars came out like May of 77. Didn't Close Encounters, Close Encounters didn't come out until, well, you, you might, you know. I, I don't remember going to a, no. I remember getting one of the, sort of the, those premiere cards had the cast, the cast and crew names and whatnot. And, but I didn't, I don't recall going to the premiere. Do you remember that during post-production, I got a phone call from Julia and Steven and they wanted me to come down and help them finish the movie because they were worried about finishing on time. And I guess it's work that was going on over at, at Trumbull's, at Don, you know, Doug Trumbull's outfit. Now, you know, working with Doug, that was another great treat because Doug had done all the work on Space Odyssey, which was just remarkable. And he's such a brilliant guy. And I remember working with him and with Matt Urisich and Dick Urisich and, you know, what a great treat it was to, to, to work with yet another stepping stone in, you know, visual effects storytelling, another tool. And it became a great learning experience for me before I went to work on Empire. I also, I've got a picture, you know, in my memorabilia book, the time that George came down to Mobile after he finished shooting on Star Wars to visit Stephen on the set. And I have a picture of the three of us sitting up on the rocks somewhere in in the box canyon you know waiting for you know waiting for a, sh- a shot to get lit and set up before we roll the camera and i had known george from graffiti and had kept in touch with with them over the years as well so it was that was a great treat for me to be with these two directors who i had, had worked with at that point and admired so much that was great what a great image of these, these two guys gabbing together with me in the shot a wonderful photograph for me I know you worked with Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins on Warning Sign. Did you meet them on Close Encounters? I first met them in Stephen's office, you know, days before Principal Photography wrote when they came in to do some uncredited script work. In exchange, they are the first two to walk off the mothership in Close Encounters. They're the World War II, you know, uh, pilots who became, who got up in. And they're the first two to wander off like open eyes, like, where are we? How did we get here? Where have we been for, you know, what's happened for the last 40 years? And those are, that's, that's Hal and Matthew. But another interesting story is right like a week or two before photography, Columbia said to the production team and to Stephen, too much money. You have to cut something out. Cut. You have to cut. Something, something's got to go. You know, too many days of shooting. Like the typical studio story. I should, you know, I should have kept the story closer to home in my career as time went by. So Chuck and I walked into Stephen's office and Clark Palo was probably there too to talk about what we could shorten on the film before photography started. And Stephen, we looked through it and Stephen said, give me the board. We said, well, okay. And Stephen took 
the production board. And you may know, I don't know if movies are scheduled, production board. You would take individual little strips, colored strips. You would color them for like daytime, nighttime, interior, exterior, different set pieces. They would have little boxes on them. You would write the numbers for all the actors that had a key, like actors one, two, three, four, like, you know, Roy Neary, you know, Jillian, Roy's wife, Truffaut, whatever their character's name. So you would know who was working on an individual in an individual scene and you put other information down about special effects or props or extra, a little description of, of the scene. And you would lump all these, these little strips. So like maybe four or five strips would make one day or four or five strips would make three days so that you would know what you were shooting. And it was easy to manipulate these strips around as you were going through the schedule and things changed. So for example, when the, the tarp ripped and it was like, okay, what do we shoot now? Or the story I told you from Empire when the weather was so bad and we had to bring Harrison up and we took a strip that was supposed to be shot in the studio and we moved it up to the Norwegian first unit location. We used to physically just pick these little strips up and move them around so you could reschedule the movie and you had this easy world that you were making based by the individual scenes that you were shooting because that's how screenplays were written. They were scene one, two, three, four, five. And so we walked in. Stephen's office with the board and we couldn't figure anything out. And Stephen said, give me the board. We handed the board to Stephen and Stephen picked the board up and he shook it. And two days popped out, popped out. And Stephen said, there are your two days. We're, we're done. This meeting's over. And we looked at each other, but it was, you know, Stephen knew what he was doing. It was brilliant. It was just like, it was, it was arbitrary at that point. You know, he knew that the studio was pregnant with the movie that they couldn't turn it down, that we just had to say, get rid of two days. So we just like pop two days out. It's like if you, you, you sort of know, you know that you've got five days to shoot a sequence. It's going to take that long, but you stop. It just became three days. And because we were doing things that nobody had ever done before, it didn't matter. It's like, go make the movie. And when we were shooting, we were, we were weeks behind schedule because the work was so difficult and the sets were so big and the visual effects would take so long. And I used to joke when we were shooting that the only way that we were going to stay on schedule was to stop shooting. We, you know, we were weeks and weeks and weeks behind schedule. By the time we were over, I think it was, we were supposed to be finished. And when did we start in April or May and got to Alabama in May? We didn't leave Alabama until the end of August. We must've been, Four or five, you know, 28 to 20 days, 24 days over schedule. The picture costs much more. And, but, you know, I think that the studio realized when the, the head of production of the two more stories, the head of production was a guy named John Beach, who was this tall, striking, good looking guy who had again been a movie assistant director working on huge movies throughout his career and then became the, you know, executive VP of production at Columbia Pictures. And, you know, and he came down to the set and realized what we were doing. I think he realized, was, you know, this is a really big movie we got going on here. This is not like it's not like people are fucking around or they don't know what they're doing. Everybody's working really hard. It just takes it takes a lot of time to do this kind of work. And he felt like we were in good hands. And he, I think at some point he kind of shrugged and plane flew back to L.A. Mr. Bloom, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. OK, I'll let you go, Mike. Thank you very much. Fun to talk to you. I appreciate it. I look forward to uh, look forward to hearing it.
I think this movie was the first time I've actually experienced the idea of different cuts of a film. Like when I was younger and they would talk about the special edition, I'm just like, okay, it was like a whole new phenomenon for me to the idea of having multiple versions of one film available. And I like a lot of the other parts of the special edition, but yeah, when they, he, when he goes into the ship, it's just like, all right. One thing that is strange is, well, seeing it on a small screen, because that's not the version I saw on the big screen. Seeing it on a small screen, I'm just like, are there other people in here? It seems like there's other people that I'm seeing, but I'm not seeing them clearly, and I'm not seeing the aliens. And that's kind of what I was hoping was like, here's what the alien ship looks like inside with all the aliens. So it's basically like him in the red jumpsuit looking kind of like, you know, Joel from MST3K, just like, okay, looking around. All right. Great, you know he's he's got the wonder. He's got that Steven Spielberg wonder face, but I'm not sharing the same wonder. I'm just like, what is going on? I'm like twisting my glasses like an old man. Like, what do I see? Something there? Yeah, you do see the aliens. You just it's very hard to make them out. But he's looking up at a big, huge, like almost city wall of windows of little aliens. Those are just like many, many, many tiny aliens, and you see them moving a little bit, and they're all looking down on him, sort of, you know. And then he starts crying. Yeah, so those are aliens, but it's very hard to make it out. It's it's very confusing. To me, that's that's almost the bigger reason not to have that scene is that it's very confusing. I mean, if he would have really done it properly, you know, you would have really gotten something that made some sense. And then the, this other alien coming out afterwards, they put the the third alien coming out afterwards is even more confusing. There are people who actually think that they turned Richard Dreyfus into an alien. You know, that's why... Because it is kind of confusing. It does kind of seem that way. Because suddenly a beam of light shoots down on Richard Dreyfus, and then out comes this, like, Carrie Guffey-looking alien, you know? And uh, I don't know. I don't know. It would have had to have the Dreyfus stubble in order to get me to believe that. <laughs> you know, they base that face on Carrie Guffey. And if you look, it's, it creeps you out once you know it. But it, it looks like him, and it's very creepy. Yeah. Another reason, I think, they're malicious. malicious. They're, 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 they're like, sampling the DNA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very creepy. How many times did they probe that kid? I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> I've seen Communion. I know what they do. Oh, Communion. What a great movie. That's the other thing about this. I mean, the idea that's – well, how, I, and I'm trying to remember, um, and I should have looked this up, but how many other alien abduction films came out before – Close Encounters, and how many followed? Because Communion came out after this, right? Yes, yes. It's 80s. You know, there's an interesting made-for-TV movie with James Earl Jones and the woman who plays the mother on Golden Girls. What's her name? Estelle Getty. And that's based on a, you know, supposedly true couple that experienced, and it's a very interesting TV movie. It's very odd, and it's nothing like anybody would make now. They're spent a lot of the time in a dark psychiatrist's office crying, you know, but it's on YouTube, but you could look it up. Um, and that was a rare, a rare, um, abduction, uh, movie, made for TV movie that I think came out before Close Encounters, but yeah, not, not a lot. The following story is based on the records of the United States Air Force the files of the Hayden Planetarium, and the actual transcripts of the tapes made by Betty and Barney Hill under hypnosis by Dr. Benjamin Simon. The purpose? To penetrate an extraordinary case of double amnesia, precipitated by their claimed sighting of a UFO in 1961. And then you have to wonder how many uh, how many accounts uh, spite after Close Encounters came out. How many reports? <laughs> well, that was the thing, too. Well, I think some of it is the idea of we are being accepted. It's okay for me to come forward now and tell my story because the movie came out. So there's always going to be that. 
but I'm always curious, like the way that the aliens look, most of the aliens in here, it's that same, you know, I was talking about the UFO museum. It's that same shape of the face, the big eyes, like it's that alien face. It's that cover of communion that we all know. And I'm so curious when that became the face for aliens. And is it one of those things where people are seeing that face? Are they thinking that they're seeing that face? Are they just reporting it because that's the face that we now associate with aliens? You know, there's some people that are just like, oh yeah, this is like a, a Jungian thing where it's buried in our subconscious and we, you know, we, because we were buried, we were visited by aliens, ancient aliens all those years ago. And this is the image that's in our head, kind of like how Roy has the image in his head. But it's just like, I'm very curious. Where did that come from? Who was the first person to draw that? And who was the second person to be like, yeah, that's what I saw. Well, I remember, I mean, this is all very, very, very hazy, but when I was a kid and into my teenage years, I was very into all of this. And rem- I remember the the emergence of the grays, as it were. And, you know, and what's interesting is while that has become kind of the preferred view of aliens, at the same time when people were reporting grays, there were these wildly different descriptions of aliens and drawings of aliens that look nothing like them. And one of the theories that was put up as to why the gray kind of latched on has to do with something of what you're talking about, of those sort of subconscious uh, recollections. But rather than it being ancient aliens visiting us, there was uh, somebody that was being interviewed that they were talking about when babies are first developing their eyesight and how before it kind of locks in and slowly developing our eyes, the view that we have of the world is very distorted and very blurry. And as a result, they theorize that when, you know, somebody leans over a baby, the eyes are the first thing they look at, and that takes a center stage. And that's how the basically how a baby interprets a face is very similar to the drawings of greys. So wherever that came from, that's what resonated with people, because on a deep subconscious level, that was our first view of other people. It was something that looked very much like a grey. And I really wish I had the source. I mean, this is stuff that's like deep subconscious. I, you know, I, I heard it and I held on to it, but I'm damned if I know the source of it. So I could be talking completely out of my ass because people forget things and people make shit up, as I've said before. I mean, of course, they didn't make up the alien autopsy video that we all watched in the 90s. Oh, I loved that as a kid. <laughs> I was convinced that in the remake of the alien encounter, I forget what it was called. Where it's like the people are at a party and then the aliens come and they attack their house. Not signs. No, it wasn't signs. It, it was a first like it was a it, when it was first made. It was a shot on VHS thing, and I watched it recently on Shutter. Speaking of the scene, you know, towards the end here, just a couple of there's some amazing Easter eggs in this movie. One is, you know, when they're the abductees are coming out of what they call the dustbin, which is that, you know, the exit there that's all bright and you can barely see anybody. And they and first it's the lost pilots, but then it's a bunch of regular people and a dog comes out. And that dog looks exactly like the dog in Spielberg's very, very first footage out of any movie that Spielberg ever made, Fireflight, the movie he made when he was a teenager, that was like a two and a half hour movie that he, you know, sunk a lot of money into and actually had a showing at a movie theater. Um, and there's only like two and a half minutes of that available. You can find it on YouTube. But in it, there's a dog. And I swear to you, it's the same dog. He picked exact same breed, exact same look. It's a very unique looking dog. And I think that's a, I, I think I'm pretty sure that's an Easter egg. 
And then the other thing is, you know, the the mothership, I guess most people know this, but it's covered in, uh, well, there's an R2-D2 hanging upside down, you know, and um, you can you can you can make that out if you know where to look for it. They they, they covered that mothership, the model, which was like a five and a half foot model um, with little crazy plastic things, which includes a shark, a bus, a, a TIE fighter, a little cemetery, a cow with wings, um, a mailbox. Anyway, it's there's just a million little things, like crazy, silly things. You can't really make them out. You can make out the R2-D2 that's hanging upside down if you look carefully. But, you know, anyway, I just love it. I love I love that kind of silly stuff. Yeah, at some point I need to visit the museum where they actually have that uh, model. But I, I, I would love to make that trip. And I did, I did find what I was looking for. The original film was called The McPherson Tape. It was released in 1989. And then the director, Dean Aliotto, did another version in 1998 that was on UPN called Alien Abduction Incident in Lake County. Yeah, I've seen that cover of The McPherson Tape. And I want to say it's like, it says something like The First Encounter or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So they were definitely playing off of the uh, close encounter stuff, and they currently have that on Shutter. So if anybody has that subscription, you can. It's a, it's an interesting little watch. Yeah, it's it's not the, you know it's early early stuff, but it, like you know very primitive, but not you know it's kind of fun. I love any found footage garbage. I love it. I did appreciate the one writer who was writing about uh, the use of lens flare in the film and how mm. this is like you know we tend to think of. I tend to think of lens flares like a mistake, but then there are filmmakers like Spielberg that were doing it on purpose to add that kind of verisimilitude. Like this is a real object that can actually cause this lens flare. So I was like, oh, well, that's kind of actually a neat idea that you were doing that and that you were doing it sparingly. Not only did it uh, add an otherworldly quality to the, the, the craft, you'd have to look through the flare to kind of see it, but from a practical standpoint, it really helped hide some of the compositing. The fact that they were able to introduce it and then use the lens flare as a way to kind of cover up some of the jagged lines that come from it. And one thing that I thought was incredible just uh, researching it now, all of the miniature work was shot in 70 millimeter because they they wanted it to look pristine when they composited into 35. So they they knew they were going to have, you know, signal loss because of they were duping a generation but so by filming it in that high definition, they were able to composite it. And it looks still looks really good. A lot of technical innovation. Tell, you know, obviously, this is Douglas Trumbull. I mean, you know, he he had done 2001. I mean, they just had that. He already knew so much of what he was doing. And I believe he's he has said that this was actually harder to do than 2001, which is a little hard to believe. But because everything was juxtaposed in a real world setting, instead of just slowly, you know, things just slowly floating through space, you had these these spaceships zooming around highways. And, and that was actually much harder. Star Wars was amazing, but you can see the difference in the quality of how crisp and the wow factor of these spaceships. It's, you, you know, and it's pretty hard to beat Star Wars. It is time for our final interview. It is effects supervisor Douglas Trumbull. You can also hear him over on our brainstorm episode. Enjoy. Where were you at in your career at that point? Because you had already directed one film. You're about to, you're, you're going to direct another one in a few years' time. This is prior to Star Trek The Motion Picture, as far as I know. So, what were you doing before you got the call to do Close Encounters? Well, I had started a company with Paramount called Future General Corporation with a mandate to explore the future of cinema. That was when we were experimenting with simulation rides and high frame rates and uh, video games. And 
real-time virtual sets and compositing. So we were doing a lot. We were kind of pretty busy, and the whole company was under Paramount Pictures. Close Encounters came along, and I was asked by Stephen to consider uh, working on the film with him. And, you know, at that time, he was the young guy who had just done Jaws. And I thought, wow, this is a really interesting young director who's going places. And I love the idea. I love the script. I love the idea of doing a story, a positive and uplifting story about UFOs and alien contact rather than, you know, aliens as flesh-eating monsters. So I was very predisposed to say yes, but I was under contract to Paramount. So I had to request a leave of absence from Paramount to go do this picture. And at the same time, I had been developing the show scan process as part of the stuff I was doing for Future General. So we had quite a lot of 65 millimeter cameras and optical printers and other stuff we were pulling together for ShowScan. So Richard Yurisich and I felt that this was the perfect time to put it all to work on a movie. And so Richard Yurisich and I joined together and formed this new company called Entertainment Effects Group. And Close Encounters was the first job we did. I know for sure you worked a lot on the ending, the whole mothership stuff. What other things were you responsible for? Well, all the UFOs and all the clouds and all the anything anything where anything unusual happens. But there's a lot of stuff that happens up on what we call Crescendo Summit, which was that kind of mountaintop where all the the locals gather to wait for the next UFO sighting and where uh, Terry Garr and her child show up. That was all a lot of front projection of the, you know, the backgrounds in those scenes. It was pretty complicated because we discovered a number of things that happened during that production, which was that even if we had stars in the projected plate, but the screen that the projected plate was going on was, you know, 150 feet away and the stars were out of focus, (laughs) you just can't have stars out of focus. So we deleted the stars and put them in in post-production as sharp stars, even though the rest of the background was out of focus. You can you can cheat the human eye, and it seems if it seems natural, and stars are supposed to be in focus, then so be it. So things like that happened all the time, and then we had to you know add the UFOs to those sequences later, you know because they fly by and everybody's watching, and there was quite a bit of uh, interesting development that happened around that because Stephen is very inclined to do things practically if he can. He wanted to have at least the lighting effects on the actors be from moving lights. And so they rigged up a uh, big, you know, arm lift, a hydraulic arm, like a, not an excavator, but a crane, really, that could dangle a bucket with a big 10K light on it and move that around. But the crane operator couldn't see the set. He could only just, he was back behind the set, putting this thing up over the top. And Stephen realized that that was, that was really dangerous. And that there was every chance that that thing was going to drop or fall or hit somebody in the head or crush somebody or whatever. So we canceled that, just put lights up on a stand and moved them around. So the shadows don't change or anything, but it was an effective interactive lighting. But there's a lot of shots like that throughout the movie, you know, particularly uh, Terry Garr's backyard where the UFOs appear in the fields. And then there were shots like inside her chimney where the camera's moving down the chimney toward the damper, and she's reaching in to pull the damper close. That was shot in our studio. There were some other things that we didn't do entirely at our place. Some some of it we did at the studio, at a stage at the studio. 
for instance, when the mothership lands, the first thing after the this big mirrored surface descends out of the bottom of the mothership, the first thing that shows up is this really weird, called an insectoid alien, a you know, very thin guy. And uh, I shot that for Stephen. He wasn't even there when I shot that. And it was a it was a puppet job. That was a puppeteered creature. And uh, so it was my idea to have him, you know, hold his arms out and embrace everybody and seem to be non-malevolent. Who actually did the designs for the spaceships? We did them all in our shop. There were storyboards that just had kind of representations of objects, and no one knew what the objects were going to be. And Stephen was very interested in doing some really oddball things because he liked the idea that the aliens had lifted components of our culture and had replicated them as the UFOs. And so one of them was going to be a sphere, like a big orange sphere, that if you rotate it around, it would say 76 on it, which was the 76 gas stations. And we tried that, and it looked pretty corny. And then we wanted one that looked like McDonald's. So we had two yellow ellipsoid craft that would fly together, then form the McDonald's arch, and then fly out. And uh, well, so some time and money was spent on those kind of things until he realized it was just two, two, two cornball. And uh, so we found a happy solution, which was to use Tonka toys and objects around the shop and put lights on them and shoot them in smoke. And you couldn't really tell what they were. Some of them we built out of plexiglass and some of them were just actually toys or objects. So if you look closely at some of the UFOs flying around Devil's Tower, one of them is a like a gas mask you put on your face, and one of them is a Tonka truck, kid Tonka truck that flies in. Then when the mothership shows up, Melinda was there with him, and when she looks back, and the and the mothership is rising up behind her, R two D two and and uh, a couple of little Volkswagen trucks and some and airplanes from 1941 were on the rim of the mothership. These were all inside jokes that we played and. And Stephen liked. It feels like lighting some of those objects must have been a real challenge, especially that police chase and the way that the ships go through the um, uh, the toll booth. It seems like that must have been a real challenge to marry those elements. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't all that hard. The toll booth was shot as a live location in Mobile, Alabama, but then uh, we added the effects afterwards by building a, a, a miniature version of that toll booth. It just has black cutouts that we could smoke it and have the UFOs fly through there and have interactive lighting. It was pretty simple. It really felt like each of those ships had its own personality. Well, that was the, that was the idea. That was Stephen wanted to have you know a personality and a sense of humor and the little red dot that kept flying around and looking at things was really kind of like Tinkerbell and you know a, a Disney cartoon. There was a version of the movie. Very few people know this story, but there was there was a version of the movie where the ending scene with the mothership used "When You Wish Upon a Star," which was a Disney property, and he got a kind of a, an okay to try licensing that. And uh, John Williams wrote the score with "When You Wish Upon a Star" in it, and then he wrote the score with "When You Wish Upon a Star" just kind of alluded to in the music. So you'll you'll see a bit of that in the end of the movie. But we did a two back-to-back previews. I think it was in Denver or Dallas. I'm not sure where it was. But we did a preview where we watched the audience very closely during the previews, as did Stephen. 
to figure out which of the endings and which of the music cues worked the best. And that's when Stephen concluded that When You Wish Upon a Star was just a little bit over-the-top corny and decided to leave that out and go with the version without it. Can you tell me about the idea of the special edition? Because that was the first movie I really remember being released multiple times when I was growing up and having different versions of it. When Stephen came up with the idea of the special edition, I said, you know, I really don't think this is a good idea and I don't want to participate in it. And one of the, there were a couple of reasons. One was I thought it was going to undermine the mystery of what the mothership was like and that going inside would be anticlimactic. But also I felt that uh, his expectation that he, that I and all of our visual effects crew do it for free made no sense because he was going to reap the profits. He was doing it for, you know, to try to get some more uh, revenue out of the movie. That's all okay. But I just said, you know, if I don't get paid, then I don't think I want to do it. Kind of ballsy to ask you to work for free. It's, you know, everybody has favors for one another. Sometimes the favors cost nothing. I mean, if you ask Rick Dreyfus to show up for a day for free, it's not a big deal for Rick to do that. If you ask a crew who have to rent a stage and have to pay the utilities and have to do all the optical printing and completion, which costs serious money, that's a favor too big. Were you on set at all or were you just kind of? I was on the set a lot. I was on the set a lot. Yeah. What were you doing there? Well, I had to supervise the photography. Any photography on the stage in was an airplane hangar in Alabama. Any photography that required visual effects added to it, uh, Richard Urisich and I supervised because we had to set the camera angles. We had to lock the cameras down. We had to block out parts of the frame where we knew a painting or a visual effect was going to be added later. And it was using all of our 65 millimeter cameras. So we were there constantly doing that. And then there were some really complicated uh, issues, which was uh, that we had built a motion control system specifically for close encounters, which was a way that we could record the camera motion on the set. If the camera panned or tilted or dollied on the set, we could record those motions, capture them digitally, and then take that back to our studio so that if a camera panned over and then revealed UFOs in that shot, we had to have a recording of that shot in order to match the UFOs into the shot. This was the first time that had ever been done digitally, and it was a breakthrough motion control system. So uh, that worked great, and uh, it wasn't easy. <laughs> uh, it was uh, on the cutting edge of technology, and uh, we were using a uh, dual digital tape recorders that were cassette tape recorders that record digital data, kind of like you have for a cassette audio recorder, but it was digital, so I had to be able to start, stop and start and rewind and do all these things automatically. The scary part of it was that they weren't reliable, and they would eat the tapes once in a while. And you would never really know until it was too late. So it was always very risky to use these things. And so one of the funny jokes on the set, because it was Steven, because these recorders ate the tapes, one of the recorders was called Jaws, and one of the recorders was called Jaws 2. And that, that's just a little funny bit of lore <laughs> of what happened in the movies. Everybody is a little crazy. How did you end up doing all of those cloud effects, especially the ones where the um, you could see the ships inside of there, see the lights at least from them? We were working, one of the guys working with us was Scott Squires, who has had quite a career since then. And he was a very ingenious young visual effects guy. 
And he came up with this idea because we had committed to the idea of doing these clouds and tanks because I knew that you could you could inject a, a little bit of paint or milk or something into a tank and it would look kind of like a cloud. And Scott came up with this idea of filling the tank half full with salt water, which was a heavier specific gravity, and then the other half of the tank with fresh water, which is lighter specific gravity, and then tuning the paint, which in this case was half and half or milk mixed with water, so that it would be injected into the fresh water and then fall down and then spread out across the salt water. What wasn't heavy enough to go through the salt water. So it gave this kind of flat bottoms to the clouds, which was really effective and stunning. A little bit of, you know, physical dynamics. So that was how that was done. It was all, it was a, uh, a manipulator arm from an atomic hot room. And I had learned about this when I was working on the Andromeda strain for Robert Wise. It was a kind of an arm thing where they were, there were these two arms that could move together through a, a connective tissue between the top. And if you pull the trigger on one, you were pulling the trigger on the other. So it was a way of picking up vials of radioactive liquids and being able to pick up a vial, pour it very carefully into another vial or whatever in a hot room. So the controller was not in the hot room. It was outside the hot room. But inside the hot room, the exact same thing was happening. So I adapted that to the clouds so that I could paint three-dimensionally in the tank. So I had a little pipette that came into the tank from the manipulator arm. And it had a little electronic valve on it. And I had the other controller outside the tank with the trigger on it. So every time I pulled the trigger, more paint would come into the tank. So I could start the trigger and then start saying, well, I'm going to paint from left to right or top to bottom or in and out and create three-dimensional clouds in the tank. Uh, and it was very, very effective and very much fun to do. And that was one of the keys to the movie because I think that was when Stephen really got the full support of the studio. When they saw those clouds, they knew that they were onto something really extraordinary. And that was a big lesson for me, too, because I found out that if you did some extraordinary effect, that could make or break a movie. And so that was a very proud moment. We've talked a little bit before about frame rates and the size of the actual film itself. What were you shooting that on? 65 millimeter negative film, which is more than twice as big as 35 millimeter. And the the reason we were doing that was just simply for quality control, because you're shooting an extremely sharp, clear, grain-free image on a larger film. And so when you optically duplicate it, there's always a grain buildup and a, a loss of quality. Every, every generation is a loss of quality. So by shooting at 65 millimeter and then compositing everything optically in 65 millimeter and then doing a final reduction to 35 millimeter, you would end up with a quality that was as good, if not just, you know, even better than the original 35 millimeter photography rather than worse. So, you know, all the movies of the day, the visual effects were always worse or had worse matte lines or worse grain or less clarity than the principal shots. So our idea was just to simply match the principal shots. And we did that on Close Encounters and Blade Runner and Star Trek, the motion picture and Brainstorm. How big were some of these models that you're dealing with when it came to like the individual ships or the mothership? They were a lot of different sizes. We didn't have any rules about sizes. It all depended on how close the object was going to get to the camera. The uh, the model of the of Devil's Tower itself, which was a plaster model, was 
I mean, the, the, the mountain itself was maybe 14, 16 inches tall, maybe 10 or 12 inches wide, and then feathering down to a larger table that was probably eight feet by eight feet. And then the mothership was about six feet in diameter. The mothership was all designed around this really interesting scale phenomena that happens in smoke. The whole plan was to shoot everything in smoke to create an atmosphere, natural kind of atmosphere. And we found out that particularly with the mothership, you could create the smoke so dense that the, the mothership would just look bigger and bigger and bigger like a city if the optical density of the smoke was enough. So we were often shooting the mothership in a room with so much smoke that you couldn't even see the mothership across the room. There was enough distance between the camera and the mothership to be just right. So it was all designed around scale. The mothership doesn't look very interesting without the smoke. It's in the uh, Smithsonian Institution, and I saw it several years ago there on display in a big glass case. And it's it's a beautiful miniature, but it doesn't have any magic to it because there's no lights in it and there's no smoke. It's all about lighting and smoke. Yeah, the lights that come off of that are just amazing. I imagine that they had to be really bright to get picked up correctly on film. Oh, they weren't really particularly bright. It's just that the exposures were particularly long. I mean, it took several seconds per frame to photograph the mothership. So time is your friend. Like when you just open the shutter, then the film remains sensitive. Leave the shutter open long enough to get a good exposure and then go to the next frame. So that's what motion control was all about, was being able to repeat movements smoothly during long exposures, which we had learned previously on 2001. I know your whole life is solving problems and finding creative solutions for problems. I'm curious, what were some of the biggest problems that you solved on Close Encounters? The biggest technical problem was really the motion control system itself and making sure that it was absolutely repeatable and that the motion was smooth and that the recordings were accurate. And in the testing phase of that system, we had some really surprising uh, results because we could take the like the handles on the pan tilt head or the cinematographer on the set uh, were just operated by the cinematographer. It was just did what he always did. He'd pan and tilt with the handles. That's the way it's done on a set. And we looked at the recordings on a kind of an oscilloscope, not an oscilloscope. We, we printed out the recordings as a like a wave file so we could see when it was going fast and when it was going slow and when it slowed down and when it stopped and when it went back another direction or whatever. And we kept seeing these little blips, these periodic blips. And we wondered what was wrong with the system. We found out that we were recording the heart rate of the cameraman. So that was accurate. <laughs> I imagine you have to work really closely with the camera operator and with the DP in order to make sure that stuff's going to match. Yeah, exactly. You got to match the lighting and perspective and the focal length of the lens and everything exactly. And so often we did, we used exactly the same camera and the same lenses. Like when we, the camera we took to Mobile to shoot the whole Devil's Tower sequence, which mostly used a Cook 30 millimeter lens, in order to get the shots of the entire landing pad and looking off into the distance, we had to actually weld the camera to a platform to the building. And the camera sat there welded at the building for days and weeks while we just shot periodic shots of whenever we had a, a, a shot, a pie that Stephen wanted. And then we just unbolted the camera, took it back to the studio, and shot the miniatures for the same shots using the same camera and the same lens. So everything matched perfectly in perspective and color, and the lens flares were the same, and everything looked like it fit together. Did you just come up with that, or had you done tests like that before? 
No, it just was the it was the natural thing to do. I mean, it was just logic to do that. I know that Spielberg has gotten really or had gotten into um, storyboarding quite a bit. Was all of this storyboarded out before you even? Well, we were part of making the storyboards. They didn't make them before we came on board. We made the storyboards with the storyboard artists and told them what we wanted to see. And some of them happened later. I mean, we, you know, we would set certain camera 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 angles on the set, and then that would become a storyboard because we knew we had to add things. And so the question was, well, what are we going to add? And so we would often, you know, take a shot of the landing pad or whatever we call it, and uh, make a color print and paste it to a piece of cardboard, and then draw on it where the mothership was going to go and what would be the perspective of the mothership as a miniature to be added to it. It was an interactive thing. It wasn't all the storyboard was the intention of the shot. The reality was what actually matched the perspective of the shot. I imagine when you're doing something like these effects that they are so time consuming and so costly that you can't afford really to shoot too much extra. I imagine there's nothing laying on the cutting room floor of these things. Very, very little cutting room floor stuff. It was all a very high degree of, of uh, success rates for shots and almost nothing wasted. Where does Close Encounters rank for you as far as enjoyment of the experience or not? Very, very high. It was great. I had a I had a kind of my own cultural problems living in Mobile, Alabama, just because there's no there's no classical music stations. And we were being harassed by the Ku Klux Klan for some anti Ku Klux Klan things that Rick Dreyfus had said on a television interview. It was a little bit spooky on the set sometimes when these drive bys would happen with guys with guns and stuff threatening us. But in general, it was a really fun creative experience working with Steven because he has a really great vision. And I had a, one of the final stories I would say about the whole movie was that I didn't know when I read the script or when we made the film that it's possible that a lot of what Steven had in the screenplay was based upon the writings of a, a real French UFO researcher named Jacques Vallée, who was played by Francois Truffaut as Lacombe. But that's a real character in real life. And I didn't know until many years later that Jacques Vallée is a real guy. And I made it my business to find him and talk to him and find out that uh, he had written a lot of reports of UFO events in several books that he knew that Steven Spielberg had read before he wrote the screenplay. And so there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's what we all do. We all research our movies before we make them and try to find out what's plausible. But I didn't know that that meant that maybe Close Encounters is a documentary film and that maybe those things depicted in the movie actually happened. That's a real wild story. What research did you do as far as how you came up with the way that the ships were going to move and those kind of things? Uh, Very little. I mean, UFOs were a big part of my life from the day I was born. I mean, I was born in L.A. when, uh, you know, World War II was just really getting ready to go. L.A during my birth was being uh, under under attack there was a blackout and everybody was completely freaked out because you know 19 i was born in 1942 and the attack on pearl harbor happened in 1941 so everybody on the west coast was completely freaked out and afraid of some japanese attack on the coast and so there were regular air raids and all kinds of stories uh, about that period of time and so when i grew up 
UFOs were on the front cover of Life magazine and Look magazine and National Geographic and Popular Science and Popular Mechanics. And it was everywhere. So UFOs were just part of growing up. It was a big part of the culture at the time because that was all you know, becoming post-Roswell. So I didn't have to do a lot of research to imagine what I thought a UFO should look like. What it became was not being discs, according to UFO lore, not flying saucers per se. We were executing what Stephen wanted, which was that they were light. They were pure light. And so the whole, he said, Stephen said, I had a, a moment with him and he said, you know, I want them to look like big, wide body jets approaching LAX at night. And he wanted them to look like indistinct and nebulous and mysterious. And you really couldn't tell what the shape was. It was just all lens flares and luminosity and beams. And so that's the direction we went. So we had complete fair play of just coming up with lots of ways to do that, which are very hard to paint. They're very hard to build as miniatures, but the miniatures for Close Encounters were very simple little shapes of like snow cones out of black and hamburgers out of black. And the whole idea was to have all these lights coming out of them. And in many of the shots, if you look closely, you'll see that there are faces. You know, there's eyes and a mouth and a nose, even though it's abstract and it's made out of light, there's a face and it kind of looks funny and humorous and delightful and not scary. It's not a monster doesn't have, you know, big glowing teeth and fangs. All through the movie was this sense of benign beauty that I really admired and was really happy to do. What have you been up to and have you been able to get much done during the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I never stop working. I'm developing a, a feature film right now with friends in LA. We do it all by Zoom calls. We do all our contacts with the studios by Zoom calls. And we do with the script development by Zoom calls. And we haven't actually been in production on anything, so we haven't had to suffer the the pandemic isolation, social distancing stuff on a set, which is very challenging. And I hope that by the time we get this project ready to shoot, that the pandemic will be over and we'll be able to just do normal stuff. Mr. Trumbull, thank you so much for your time. This was great to talk to you again. I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. Were there any other deleted scenes that you guys remember where you're just like, oh, yeah, this really should have been in there or anything that kind of struck a chord for you? Well, the one that was interesting to me, because for the longest time, I'd always heard that the director's cut, the third cut that Spielberg did, was basically the best of the theatrical and the special edition. Now, I heard that he'd cut some things out of the special edition, but I thought that pretty much everything had been restored for the director's cut. But there is actually one scene that was didn't make it over. It's where uh, Roy visits the power plant. That that's only in the theatrical cut, and it's it's kind of a nothing, a little nothing of a scene. But it was interesting to me that it's like, oh, that was part of the movie. Because again, my preferred uh, version of the film is Spielberg's uh, preferred version, that final director's cut. So going back and watching these different versions, like, wait a minute, I don't know this scene. Yes, I like that scene too. It's it's a great setting. It's very real. You know, you you probably imagine they went to a real place and just. I like the I like the you know that intro of Roy's character um, and all these you know these kinds of normal guys all around him and 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 how you know again it's above your head because it's all very technical. Some people might think it's boring, but I think it adds a lot of flavor to 
you know, in realism to the whole thing. For me, also, the one that comes after that that was excised is him going to the site where some of the lines came down, where they were maybe taken by the aliens. Who knows? And he's um, talking to this other guy. And as they're talking about the problems with the lines missing and what's going on around the different towns, um, you hear the dispatch radio saying these things about what people are reporting and you can almost no, don't notice it. It's just in the background and they're saying, yes, a woman's reporting a, a Tiffany lamp that's upside down. That's outside her window, you know, and I love that touch. It's this spooky little background. You almost don't notice it touch. It's a woman's voice. So it kind of pops a little bit and it's just like, what's going on on the police radio where all these people are reporting these very strange sightings, you know, and I love that touch. And there's also a little touch that's in the movie that I never noticed except for on uh, repeated viewing was when um, Roy's getting fired uh, and she's on the phone right before that, the boys are kind of arguing and you don't notice it. It's like a background argument. It's not in the front. It's not even in the script that Steven Spielberg that I saw that he wrote. And the kids are saying, you know, was that you who stole my covers last night? You know, someone came in through the window and stole my, and it's so creepy and you don't notice it. It's just in the background, but the kids are talking about how like, it seems like something happened. You know, when you think about it, it seems like that may be an alien experience. I don't know. It's very interesting. I love, I love those details. I totally forgot about that until you mentioned it, but yeah, that's fantastic when they do that. Have you guys ever seen closet cases of the nerd kind? No, I haven't seen that one. I saw that it was available, but I, I didn't check it out. I watched it. I watched it. You don't know how many times I've seen it over the years. I mean, <laughs> it was on the same VHS tape as uh, Hardware Wars and Porklips Now. And I would, like, not only would they show it, I think they showed it on, like, maybe Nickelodeon if, if they didn't have enough room like if they had too much room after a movie or after a program but i saw it on tv a lot when i was growing up and then rented hardware wars and it was on there and i want to say bambi meets godzilla is also on there too but classic cases of the nerd kind to me is just one of those pitch perfect parody films i don't know susan what you thought about it but for me i just i love it it could have been because i grew up with it yeah, I hadn't seen it till, you know, till just researching this show. So I didn't, I hadn't, so it's, I'm a little, it's a little past. It's, you know, it's, it's, it hasn't aged perfectly well, um, compared to some, some of the other parody, but it's, it's funny. It's goofy. It's a pie in the face. You know, it's that kind of pie in the face stuff. It's literal like, pie in the yeah, face. Yeah. <laughs> P.I., P.I. and P.I.E. both in the face. Excuse me. I was a scientist before I became a bad actor. I know what that number is. Well, what is it? What is it? It's pi. Yeah, I love it because it's all done for folks that haven't seen it. It's all done as a trailer. So you get this guy who sounds very much like Hans Conried doing this voiceover, this very extreme voiceover, like coming to a theater near you kind of thing. And they talk about what Roy Dreary instead of Roy Neary. And he works at this power plant and he goes out and he gets this encounter because this, this thing pulls up behind him and it's Darth Vader on a motorcycle saying, you're blocking the road. <laughs> <laughs> and he keeps just saying, like, this means something, like, whenever something happens, so, like, the alien ship, and he's like, this means something. And then I love the uh, talking mailboxes that are just, like, start singing the song, Gonna Build a Mountain in Your Living Room. <laughs> 
living room. In your living room. You gotta build a mountain. Gotta build a mountain, and it's gonna be keen. This means something. All post sync goofy ass voices i love the the clown that he sees on tv and uh who is uh you know all obsessed with the uh, cream pies and that's roy's obsession he keeps smacking him fi- himself in the face with cream pie want to be kidnapped by creatures from another galaxy hurry to the saralu country pie store nearest you offer closes at midnight so hurry I had my granddaughters over a couple weeks ago, and I first off, I never knew that there's a Paddington television show. So, like, with Ben Wishaw doing the voice of Paddington on this TV show, it's an animated TV show. It's a really good TV show, and it was nice to hear him doing that voice. They find this old radio, and the radio's getting, like, weird signals coming through it, and so they start to convince themselves that it's an alien talking to them through this radio. It's like Paddington and the the two kids cut to them having dinner, and they're in front of Paddington, there's this mashed potatoes all formed like Devil's Tower. <laughs> and I'm I'm cracking up, and of course, you know, the, the seven-year-old and the two-year-old have no idea why I'm laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we can't commit, forget the parody that popped up in uh, UHF. Get that overactive imagination of yours to work for you instead of against you. Maybe you could... What are you doing? This means something. This is important. I mean, it, it just it took over everything. I remembered the Bill Murray thing, but I didn't know which episode it was in. Thank you, Susan, for looking that up. Yeah, I, I, I remembered him doing Star Wars, and I didn't. You had mentioned he did the theme from Close Encounters. I was like, I don't, I don't remember that, but I dug it up, and it's of course the episode that Richard Dreyfuss hosted, third season three. Uh, and yeah, he does. He does um, the lounge singer, you know. Then he does. He does the the theme from Closing Encounters. It's, it's so great. Hey, my company is Paul Schaefer. Come on, everyone in the room. Hey, did anybody? Who was playing the music so loud this morning? Anybody? Did anybody hear some real loud music about six o'clock, Paul? You? Yes, I did. Did it go something like da 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 da? Yeah. Apparently, they also had a sketch uh, back then with the nerds, you know, which was Bill and Gilda, uh, which is my favorite thing on all of early SNL. And they did a prom ep- uh, episode for them. And the prom was called Close Encounters of the Prom Kind. So, you know, they, they I mean, it was so in the air. I mean, you just look, there's, you know, I found a list of like references to this. And, you know, every sitcom around that time had a Close Encounters of the Worst Kind on Alice. Close Encounters of the Fishy Kind on Fish. Close Encounters of the Carvelli Kind on Welcome Back, Cotter. Close Encounters of the Scooby Kind on Scooby-Doo. Like, everybody had it. Like, everybody 
Benson did it. The Muppets did it. The Gummy Bears, uh, Adventures of the Gummy Bears had close encounters of the gummy kind. You know, so I could go on and on. There's so many more. But um, it was just absolutely took over everything because it, it was so signature. You know, the potatoes, the name of the film, you know, which, again, is, is such an interesting name for a film, which is why I think people parodied that name so much, because it's an odd name for a film. They almost didn't let him use that phrase because it just was such an odd, it was so confusing. It, it didn't really um, convey the idea of a UFO because most people didn't even know what that meant, you know, so it's very interesting. Again, not insulting the intelligence of the audience. I think that paid off. Well, and it was a great marketing tool as well because i remember them saying like the first kind and like telling you what that was and stepping you through that and then just like and this is the third kind it's like it's kind of like that moment in uh twister when it's like well what about a category five and everybody just gets super quiet yeah i'm looking at this list of all of the references to close encounters not just the uh the titles but also just like here's one johan creates an ice cream version of devil's tower you know it's just like so many things and yeah it's just amazing that still i mean this paddington show is current and so there's still people are still making references to it it's fantastic I just re- I read on Twitter, you know, just uh, jokingly, I'm I'm doing a po- recording, a podcast recording, um, having I won't say what the movie is, but it ha- I will have mashed potatoes at the ready, and everybody immediately knew what I was talking about. You know, mashed potatoes and close encounters, it's like they're paired together forever. You know, it's sort of funny. I never watched any of the uh, the porn parodies, unfortunately, so I've never seen <laughs> close encounters. <laughs> I, well, I, it's fascinating to me it's because part of the culture. It's part. It's it's a projection booth feature. It's a, it's a feature of the show. I know. I well, you didn't send us any. Yeah, I, I missed that. I know. Well, I'm used I, to getting my seventies porn from you. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I know that in Superwoman, which was uh, renamed as Ms. Marvelous, I want to say because Superwoman they sued uh, DC sued them. But I remember Mike Horner was just like, "Boy, that was a close encounter." I think he says so. Um, Oh, that, that just reminds me. Another reference to it would have been uh, Aliens. I like to keep this handy for close encounters. Caddyshack, too. I think Chevy Chase does the or something like that. Something. God, that was like one of the first things I learned how to play on the piano was that. Yeah, I actually accidentally did the Twilight Zone theme song just now. It's, <laughs> they're, they're, I don't know why I did that. They're both as iconic as iconic could be. I'm sure we'll probably get like a, you know, at least, at least two people are going to tweet at us after this and tell us like, oh, well, what about this? And what about this? Cause it's just, it's everywhere. And that's all we can say is just like, it's been around for over 40 years and it has been such a cultural phenomenon for all that time. Though I don't know how many people today are familiar with that film. I was talking about it when I was uh, at work earlier. I was like, oh, I'm going to do a podcast on Close Encounters. And it's like all the young people looked at me like I had three heads. I was like, really? You guys haven't seen Close Encounters? But all right. Well, like you said, it's not really a movie for young people. As kids, you you can get drawn into it, but it's not one that you appreciate, I think, until you get older. And even though they may not be familiar with it, I still believe in the staying power of this film that you can come to it at any time as as an adult down the, down the line and still kind of get wrapped up into it at least i like to think so i think we're we're lucky to be the age to have experienced that stuff when it was so 
jaw dropping, you know, and and of course, kids are spoiled now with CGI. But you know, even when they innovate with CGI now, it's never that jaw dropping because you know, they could do anything now, you know, and it just, um, I don't know, you know, it was such a leap, this movie, the special effects and Star Wars, and of course, 2001, although I was, you know, that was a little before my time, but still, even in the 70s, 2001 looked just jaw-dropping jaw-dropping like you just didn't you couldn't imagine how they did it you know and i'm kind of glad you know that i don't know if you can experience that now anymore it's almost unfortunate that it came out in 77 because i think it was overshadowed by star wars i know it ended up making buku box office it was what six months after star wars came out but in those days movies played for a long damn time so i wouldn't be surprised if the special edition which came out in what 80 which, unfortunately, that's the year that Empire Strikes Back comes out in. <laughs> but, you know, it's like the, it, the movie probably had just stopped playing by the time the special edition comes out. Yeah, and just the fact that they were – it did have that staying power. That, you know, they were willing to, to give you give him more money to do what he wanted to do with it. As long as, you know, they did what uh, – he did what Columbia wanted to do and show the inside of the spaceship. No quid pro quo. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. What if you owned your own drive-in? An open-air theater outside of time and space. You could show anything you want. You could pair together any movies you want. Regardless of genre. Regardless of when they were made. Regardless of quality. If you could own such a theater. If you could do whatever you wanted. You certainly wouldn't do it like this. It's like if we don't use it, you'll be like wasting my precious fluids <laughs> my precious creative juices oh my god i had to i had to read two sentences <laughs> over and over who is this guy thinking he is kubrick fincher <laughs> who's this f-ing guy are you ready for me to read this mr hitchcock <laughs> yeah. Yeah. is the bird gonna <laughs> on my shoulder in this scene too he's a plastic bird he doesn't even make <laughs> on his own <laughs> <laughs> The all-night drive-in picture show. Available now at a podcatcher near you. New on digital, Pierce Brosnan leads a star-studded cast in the action-packed high-stakes heist thriller The Misfits. Also starring Nick Cannon, Tim Roth, and Jamie Chung, a band of modern-day Robin Hoods recruit a renowned thief to help them pull off the heist of the century. Hold on tight for the thrill ride of the summer. Buy or rent The Misfits now on digital and on-demand. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. What happens when former Beatle George Harrison brings together John Cleese, Sean Connery, Shelley Duvall, Catherine Hellman, Michael Palin, six little people, one little boy, two living gargoyles, a giant, an ogre, Napoleon, Robin Hood, a supreme being, an incarnation of evil, 12 cowboys, six flying cowheads, and a device for tripping through time? Answer, Time Bandits. Rated PG. Thank you very much. Thank you very, 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 very much. The fantasy begins Friday, November 6th at a theater near you. Rated PG. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Terry Gilliam's Time Bandits. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Susan and Al Goro. So, Susan, what has been keeping you busy lately? 
Well, I've started a new podcast, which I'm mostly doing on YouTube, but I will be eventually doing an audio version. But uh, go to YouTube and look for Comedy Film Funnel. My co-host is New Yorker cartoonist Joe Dater, who had been a guest often on my other podcast, Rosemary's Baby 666 and The Shining 237 and Everybody Loves Joe. So we're together um, co-hosting a, a series on comedies. It's just we look at a different comedy film every episode. And, and it's been so much fun and it's terrifying being on camera, but it's also kind of different. And um, uh, yeah, so that's that's been we uh, we just did Animal Crackers. And our next episode is what we do in the shadows. So we're like all over the place time wise. And yeah, it's 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 I hope everybody does check that out. And Al Gore, what's the haps with you? Uh, still continuing on with the Talk Without Rhythm podcast, my weekly movie discussion podcast. Uh, as I said on the last week, uh, the most recent episode was our double feature of Afterlife Films with 1991's Defending Your Life and What Dreams May Come. Uh, we put out that episode. It turned into a pretty good conversation. And uh, yeah, right now I'm just continuing on with more of my Patreon picks and definitely taking a decidedly sh- uh, shift in tone with the content since the next episode is going to feature uh, Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, I have yet to see that one. I just have kind of avoided it after all these years. I will say definitively, it's it's perfectly okay to watch the the version that where they cut out the animal violence. It doesn't add anything to the movie other than things you probably don't want to see. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, and find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
I'm not saying it's space aliens, right? But it goes without saying it's fucking space aliens.